Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash covers your skin in layers of rich moisturizers and vitamin B3 complex, transforming your skin from dry and dull to moisturized, soft and smooth in just 14 days. Feel the best in your skin and glow with confidence, all pride. For the third year, Olay Body is a proud sponsor of iHeartRadio and PNG's Can't Cancel Pride and supporter of the LGBTQ plus community. So this pride glow with confidence, not just all month, but all year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. The following is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army! Sarge, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again! Platoon, present cell phone. High Five! High Five! Casino! Casino! Win at HighFiveCasino.com! High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino! Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about things falling apart and how they came to be that way. I'm your host, Christopher Wong, and today we're doing part three of our series on neoliberalism. We're going to start today with one of the most famous episodes in the history of neoliberalism, the September 11th, 1973 coup against Salvador Allende. Allende was a democratic socialist of a type that has broadly ceased to exist today, a committed Marxist who believed that a class of society could be created by means of electoral democracy. He embarked on a campaign drastically more radical than any modern socialist politician has done more than dream of. Mass nationalizations in an attempt to develop a technical system that would allow the government to democratically plan as much of the economy as humanly possible. In part, his hand was forced by Chile's workers, who had embarked on their own unsanctioned campaign of takeovers of mines and factories, 
which Allende disapproved of and now sought to bring under the National Planning Scheme. To do this, he brought in British cybernetics theorist Stanford Beer, who embarked on an operation called Project Cybersyn to collect and coordinate information between various factories and allow democratic planning at the ground level in a way that would allow instantaneous reaction to crises and immediate changes in production levels and conditions inside the factories themselves to deal with them. Allende, for all his Marxist credentials, was fiercely critical of the bureaucratization of the USSR, and in particular, in the economic sphere, the way its planning systems were essentially unable to react to local changes quickly in a context where plans were only created every five years. Cybersyn would solve these problems by workers' participation at the factory level and constant updated data flows to the planning office. As the project went on, beer became progressively more radical. A strike by right-wing truck workers backed by capitalists in the CIA in 1972 threatened to grind the nation to a halt. In response, workers formed enormous cordones industriales, or industrial belts, to help self-organize production and bypass the striking right-wing workers. In coordination with Allende's government and a new cybersyn control room, they were able to outmaneuver the strike and maintain production and distribution at nearly full capacity by tracking where goods were going and where they needed to go along what routes. Beer rapidly became convinced that, quote, the basic answer of cybernetics to the question of how the system should be organized is that it ought to organize itself. In essence, that cybersyn should be used to eliminate the bureaucracy in the state entirely and allow workers to directly organize production themselves. Now, cybersyn, in theory, is what the neoliberals claim, at least in public, to want. It's an anti-bureaucratic system that uses decentralized control over the means of production to combat totalitarianism and ensure that the state respects individual rights and liberties. In fact, as Evengi Monoros put it, Beer and Hayek knew each other, as Beer noted in his diary, Hayek even complimented him on his vision for the cybernetic factory after Beer presented it at a conference in 1960 in Illinois. So, naturally, when the system was actually implemented, at least in part in Chile, the neoliberal position was that every single person involved in the entire economic experiment needed to be killed. Chile was put under economic blockade by the U.S. and multinational corporations with full neoliberal support, an ironic position given Milton Friedman, Hayek, and Ropke's pure and absolute opposition to economic blockades of South Africa or Rhodesia. To its eternal shame, the AFL-CIO's American Institute for Free Labor Development provided training and funds to the right-wing unions that opposed the leftist government and others across Latin America. In Chile, working directly with the CIA, the AFL-CIO's organizations trained the right-wing truckers whose 1972 strike we've already discussed and whose 1973 strike would pave the way for Pinochet's coup. In many cases, organized labor, especially in the U.S., but also in places like Italy, spent the 70s battling their own left flank in defense of capital. Their reward for their services was capital turning around and gutting them like a fish in the 80s. Allende, too, fought a series of battles with his left flank, disarming the mass workers' assemblies that had formed in 1972 It could have saved him from the coup. The result was the other 9-11, on which day in 1973 the military overthrew Allende in a coup and Allende shot himself in the presidential palace. The man who would emerge on the top of the power struggle in the military at the end of the coup was one Augusto Pinochet. Now, Pinochet from the beginning had the support of Chile's own domestic neoliberals, of which there were a fairly large number. Upon taking power, he carried out what would become the standard neoliberal program, returning nationalized industries to the capitalists, eliminating price controls, and increasing interest rates. But full-scale neoliberalism didn't come immediately. Inflation, which Pinochet had nominally in large part taken 
power to control continued unabated. And in 1974, Milton Friedman arrived in Chile to argue for neoliberal shock therapy. But it wasn't until Pinochet's desperation for money drove him to the IMF that he would fully embrace neoliberalism. Most of the world had refused to do business with a new dictatorial regime, with the exception of the U.S., and oddly enough, Mao's China, which poured money into the regime in Pinochet's personal pockets. But that money was insufficient, and the IMF was the only remaining body who would actually lend money to Pinochet without any requirements on improving Chile's, at this point, abysmal human rights record. Much of the full neoliberal turn that hit Chile in 1975 came from demands from the IMF itself, who demanded draconian measures to control inflation. Here, Pinochet was aided by the support of the neoliberals, whose legitimacy and academic standing allowed them to negotiate and secure favor from the IMF, which they had already begun to infiltrate. At this point, the infamous Chicago Boys, economists trained at the University of Chicago by Milton Friedman, were put in charge of the economy. University of Chicago-trained economist Sergio de Castro, known as the Pinochet of the economy, was put in charge of the Ministry of Economics. De Castro privatized an enormous portion of the remaining profitable state industries, eliminated tariffs and implemented free trade policies, deregulated the finance sector, and eliminated any remaining price controls. Chicago boys would go on to do things like privatizing the entire Chilean pension system, with the exception of the military, which is as good an education of any as to what the regime thought the actual effects of privatization would be. In 1978, Pinochet declared something called the Seven Modernizations, with, quote, reforms in labor, education, health, regional decentralization, agriculture, and justice policy. The goal of these reforms was to introduce the market into literally every aspect of society. Now, in episode one, I very briefly mentioned the Virginia School as one of the major schools of neoliberalism. The Virginia School of the People Behind Public Choice Theory, their thing is essentially taking the absolutely absurd set of beliefs Chicago School holds about people, that humans are all-knowing, rational, calculating, gods optimizing their behavior to get the most of every single interaction to maximize the utility, and then applying it to political science and then literally every other field. If you've ever heard someone say there's no rational reason to vote, because if you're a rational, self-interested person, the cost of voting outweighs the benefit, because your vote only matters if it's deciding one, Therefore, it's against your interest to vote. That's the Virginia School and their public choice theory bullshit at work. Pinochet's Seven Modernizations was an application of Virginia School doctrine to the entire Chilean state and as much as the society as humanly possible with the goal of transforming it into a market. I'm going to read a section from The Road to Mount Pelion describing Virginia School titan James M. Buchanan's work. Quote, Ineffectual consequences in the political marketplace were blamed solely on the fallacies of political decision-making. Quote, We can summarize public choice as a theory of government failure, end quote. Buchanan delivered a highly abstract paper titled Limited or Untitled Democracy to the Montpellier Society in Viña del Mar in Chile in 1981, which some constructed as a critique of the host country's mobilization for action history. Buchanan stated that if limited democracy was a polity predisposed to disable a political market that would otherwise promote the most efficient allocation of resources, the only meaningful task of the government would be to deprive the polity of its ability to do so. Public choice theory thus sought to limit democracy and depoliticize the state in order to enable unconstrained market forces to guide human interaction. Since the Pinochet regime was committed to using its governmental powers in precisely this manner, Buchanan's paper provided theoretical support for the regime, even if it did not openly endorse the authoritarian rule. 
Buchanan, of course, would spend a bunch of time doing lectures in Chile throughout Pinochet's dictatorship, but he was not that regime's most vociferous neoliberal supporter. That award goes to Frederick Hayek. Here's Hayek when asked about Chile, which he'd been to in 1978 and had blessed with his approval. Quote, a dictatorship can restrict itself, and a dictatorship which deliberately is restricting itself can be more liberal in its politics than a democratic assembly which has no limits. Chile's 1980 constitution was drafted in part by one of Hayek's friends. Uh, here's Road, Road to Mount Pelion again. The constitution was not only named after Hayek's book, The Constitution of Liberty, but also incorporated significant elements of Hayek's thinking. Above all, the constitution placed a strong emphasis on a neoliberal understanding of freedom. Guzman's version of freedom is intrinsically connected to private property, free enterprise, and individual rights. Individual freedom, in his interpretation, can only evolve in a radical market order. The Constitution was dedicated to guarantee such an order without constraining any economic activities. In order to protect free market conditions and individual freedoms against totalitarian attacks or democratic interventions, the Constitution stipulated the necessity of a strong central state authority to guarantee the established rule of law and thus, above all else, is hampered in the application of discretionary government power. Exempted were measures to uphold the status quo inasmuch as Guzman aggressively supported continuing the state of emergency, which legalized the use of whatever discretionary powers were deemed necessary to quell opposition. That, folks, is a Hayekian constitution. Use the state to murder anyone who wants democracy, or God help them wants to control the production they're forced to serve every day. Chile is neoliberalism's Voltron. By combining the power of all four major schools of neoliberalism— Chicago School Monetary and Economic Policy, Austrian School Constitutional Order, order liberal reliance on the international bureaucracy and legal institutions like the IMF in order to promote a market economy, and Virginia School Public Choice Theory running the state, you get a neoliberal right-wing military dictatorship. Now, most conventional accounts of neoliberalism will move from Chile to Reagan and Thatcher. And next episode, we'll cover the neoliberal counter-revolution in the Anglosphere. But focusing on purely national events gives a skewed perception of how neoliberalism actually spreads. And in order to correct that, we're going to look at Venezuela. I'm going to be drawing heavily here from the work of the legendary Venezuelan anthropologist Fernando Coronel in his book The Magical State, which I highly recommend as one of the best things ever written about oil and the Venezuelan state. Though, readers be warned, chapter one is an absolute slog that on the one hand is one of the most interesting explanations of what oil rents are I've ever encountered, but also features Coronel inventing a new trialectic and then stubbornly refusing to explain what it is or literally anything about how it works. So read the magical state, skip chapter one. <laughs> now, the guiding principles of the new mass capitalist democratic parties in post-dictatorship Venezuela since the 1960s had been developing sovereignty by economic independence. The keystone of this project was an attempt to use the power of the state and new oil rents to develop an automotive industry. The project had sort of stalled out from its origins in the 60s until the rise of the G77 OPEC alliance in 1973 and 1974 that we discussed last episode. In 1975, Venezuela's assembly passed a law that granted the president special powers to speed up the developments of the auto industry, the auto industry in Venezuela. Corinne described it thus, quote, the central goal was to have 90% of the vehicle's value, including the drivetrain, produced locally by 1985. Major components would be produced by enterprises having at least 51% of their capital from local private sources. 
Existing foreign companies would have to become mixed or national firms in accord with NDA impact regulations if they wanted to benefit from the common market. Now, this plan is what's called industrial import substitution. Developing countries would attempt to develop industries, in this case auto manufacturers, inside of a country to produce cars for internal consumption instead of importing them from other countries. The other key of this plan is the Andean Pact, an association of Bolivia, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and Chile that was collaborating to develop a regional industrial economy that would use local resources to build a local industrial economy, producing industrial goods made entirely inside of the countries themselves from their resources. Now, Venezuela joins the pack in 1973, and Pinochet notably leaves in 1977. The key sticking point in this joint and day impact Venezuelan attempt to build an auto industry was that Venezuela needed technology held by multinational corporations in order to actually produce the vehicles. Multinational car companies were willing to go ahead with the project to build cars in Venezuela in the short term because they were hurting from the oil shock and thus were willing to help national plants develop cars as long as they could use the parts to build their own cars with parts sourced from around the world. And this is where the neoliberal defense of intellectual property rights becomes extremely important because the companies who held the patents for the drivetrains essentially had a technological stranglehold over car development. Now, Venezuela conducted an extensive bidding process for companies to make cars in Venezuela, but the car companies essentially sabotaged it by submitting designs that failed specs. The result was a kind of political war inside Venezuela, and particularly inside the Venezuelan ruling class between national development and international profits. The Venezuelan developmentalists needed a breakthrough. What they needed, in essence, was a new international economic order and its corporate regulations, debt relief and technology transfers. Without them, even a third world country like Venezuela, flush with oil money, was incapable of developing an industrial economy. But the new international economic order never came. All the G7 had to do in order to stop it was stall the G77 out until commodity power faded. The G77 had to fundamentally change the structure of the economy in order to allow them to industrialize before the sordid Damocles hanging over all of their heads, the mounting third world debt, fell and decapitated them. The G7's strategy to outlast the G77 was to pull the various factions of the G77 apart, in particular, pulling the moderate governments away from the radical wing of OPEC and the African socialists. They attacked OPEC by using Saudi Arabia to undermine its unity and attempted to peel the so-called less developed countries away from their alliance with OPEC, with a promise of aid to patch up the damage dealt by increased oil prices. Neither worked incredibly well, but when combined with the U.S. essentially shutting the U.N. down by refusing to let any business get done, or refusing to vote for or even vetoing routine matters, the stalling worked. No new international economic order was forthcoming. Instead, the world would get neoliberalism. Neoliberalism arrived on the world stage in the form of the Volcker shock. In 1979, Jimmy Carter appointed Paul Volcker as the chairman of the Federal Reserve with a broad mandate to do whatever he wanted to reduce inflation. Volcker had become a disciple of monetarism, a Friedmanite Chicago school belief about the role of the money supply in the economy considered to be absolutely crank, even by modern neoliberals. His solution, which became known as the Volcker shock, was to increase interest rates to 20%. This essentially blew a crater in the American economy and immediately sent it into recession, and we'll get to Volcker and Reagan's efforts to destroy American labor in the next episode, but the damage to the third world was even worse. G77 governments had, for decades, taken out adjustable rate loans pegged to something called the LIBOR rate. 
When they took the loans out, interest rates were virtually negative. But when the Volcker shock hit, they skyrocketed. Now, as we talked about last episode, a major part of the crisis of the 70s was enormous piles of oil money, mostly from the Gulf states, floating around that nobody could actually get returns on because of declining manufacturing profit rates. This money wound up flowing back into the American finance system when capital controls were lifted in 1975, and the banks threw the money at loans in the third world. Now, some of that money had been put into industrial development that had yet to pay off. Some of the money had simply been put directly into dictators' bank accounts. But the banks essentially didn't care if the loans they were making had little to no chance of being repaid without some kind of structural reform, because in 1978, control of the IMF fell to an arch-neoliberal named Jacques de la Roussier. I, I really don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but he is evil, so... Neoliberals further took control of the World Bank in 1981. From the IMF and the World Bank, a succession of neoliberals enshrined the key principle of the new neoliberal order. Debtors must always pay back their debts. Creditors would no longer assume risk for their loans. Instead, loans would be repaid at gunpoint. This was no mere rhetorical slogan. As the G77 imploded as a political body under the weight of hundreds of billions of dollars of debt, now with 20% interest, Thomas Sankara, the socialist president of Burkina Faso, attempted to rally its remains to collectively negotiate debt relief. Sankara was promptly shot by a former ally who accused him of threatening Burkina Faso's relationship with France. With all resistance slaughtered, entire nations were reduced to debt servicing machines as tax dollars were directed from health, education, and social security programs into the coffers of international banks, which used the newly neoliberal-controlled International Monetary Fund as their enforcer. The anthropologist David Graeber described the consequence of one such IMF austerity program in debt the first 5,000 years. Quote, For almost two years, I had lived in the highlands of Madagascar. Shortly before I arrived, there had been an outbreak of malaria. It was a particularly virulent outbreak because malaria had been wiped out in highland Madagascar many years before, so that, after a couple of generations, most people had lost their immunity. The problem was, it took money to maintain those mosquito eradication programs, since there had to be periodic tests to make sure mosquitoes weren't starting to breed again, and spraying campaigns if it was discovered that they were. Not a lot of money. But owing to IMF-imposed austerity programs, the government had to cut the monitoring program. 10,000 people died. I met young mothers grieving for lost children. One might think it would be hard to make a case that the loss of 10,000 human lives is really justified in order to ensure that Citibank wouldn't have to cut its losses on one irresponsible loan that wasn't particularly important to its balance sheet anyways. Following the old older liberal dream of a legal framework to ensure neoliberal market economies, the new generation of neoliberals used the IMF, World Bank, and other bureaucratic institutions to act as debt enforcers and impose neoliberal policies from above without anything so petty as democracy interfering with it. In fact, one of the first neoliberal structural adjustments, one of a bewildering new array of terms for IMF-enforced austerity programs, was implemented by the Jamaican socialist Michael Manley in 1977, which in a single year wiped out every gain in education and public health that Manley had spent his first term building up. Similar faiths would befall health, education, and justice programs across the world. The death toll remains unknown. Venezuela would fall victim to a similar fate, Without the new international economic order, Venezuela's industrial policy imploded as post-Volkershock government debt skyrocketed. In the 1980s, the government began to impose IMF structural adjustments. Carlos Andres Perez, the man who led the industrial push in the 1970s, was elected a second time in 1989, running a campaign that I've seen euphemistically described as, quote, 
against liberalization policy. Uh, it was uh, somewhat more extreme than that, featuring lines such as calling the IMF, quote, a bomb that only kills people. But Perez was negotiating with the IMF behind the scenes and imposed even harsher IMF austerity measures upon winning the election, leading to a mass uprising in 1989 that was suppressed in a bath of blood, with hundreds killed by the army. But even more structural adjustments were imposed after Perez was deposed for corruption in 1992, implemented, ironically, by the founder of the movement towards socialism, Teodoro Petkoff, the head of Venezuela's planning agency in 1996. All of Venezuela's economic crises from the 1980s until now stem from the failures of 1970s industrialization. Without any kind of industrial economy, even the socialists that took power in the 1999 on a national level were reduced to shuffling oil rents around. And with the market economy still in place, the economy simply imploded again when oil prices fell. This is how neoliberalism comes to most countries. Not as policies implemented by anything even remotely resembling the will of the people, but enforced by the international economic system itself and the bureaucrats, the IMF, the World Bank, and the World Trade Organization. It is imposed by enormous states at gunpoint, constituted by the mass looting of the population in order to pay corporate debt masters. Neoliberals have effectively achieved their goal and transcended democratic politics entirely. From their perches in the international bureaucracy, they can dictate policy to even hostile leaders. But tomorrow, we'll see what happens when they take power domestically as we conclude our neoliberalism series with a man rotting in hell with Paul Volcker, Ronald Reagan. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You're probably careful with your personal information. But what about the other places that have it? Like the doctor's office that mixed up your files. They have your social security number. The power company that mistakenly cut your service has your payment info and last three addresses. And the hotel that lost your reservation has your passport info. Your information is in endless places out of your control. Any one of them could accidentally expose you to hackers and identity theft through lax security, breaches, or simple mistakes. But LifeLock monitors millions of data points every second and alerts you to a wide range of threats. If your identity is stolen, a U.S.-based restoration specialist will fix it, guaranteed, or your money back. With plans covering up to $3 million for stolen funds and expenses. Mistakes happen. Don't let not having protection be one of them. Save up to 40% your first year at LifeLock.com news. That's LifeLock.com news to save up to 40%. Terms apply. This is it. Your moment. 
This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at highfivecasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumberFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a show about things falling apart and is for one final time this week about why and how things have fallen apart in this specific way. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm your host, Christopher, and today with me I have Garrison. Hello, Garrison. Hello. How you doing? I'm doing fine. We're going to talk about something that is not fine, it's not fine at all, is in fact extremely grim and bad which is uh, part four of our series of neoliberalism, i.e. Uh, all of the bad things happen at once. So in, 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 in our last episode, we talked about how throughout, throughout most of the third world, or you know what was at the time known as the third world, neoliberalism is not really imposed by people voting for it. It's mostly imposed by either external forces via coup or by just the IMF going, okay, just, we're, we're running the country now. Um, but this, this, yeah, we're we're, we're going to shift our focus a bit this episode to the people who were, uh, I don't know, unfortunate enough, uh, misguided enough, decided that they hated each other enough to actually uh, choose neoliberalism for themselves. Now, one of the, the sort of stories we've been tracing here on sort of a very broad arc is the reaction by neoliberals to a kind of, a kind of compromise that had been worked out between labor and capital, particularly in the U.S., after sort of the open class warfare from the 1930s. And, you know, there, there's essentially, there's, there's a kind of deal that's set up informally, which is, so the, the, the working class will stop literally constantly going on strike and showing up the strikes with like enormous numbers of guns and shooting at people. And they will, you know, stop trying to overthrow the government. And in exchange, the state gives you welfare programs. The state will give you a house. And this is, this is particularly after World War II. The American state just, you know, does this massive homeownership campaign. And, you know, if, if you're if you're if you're, you know, a union worker, particularly if you're a white man like this, this, you know, working, working, working one of these union jobs will put you into the middle class. You can take vacations. You can have a house. Um, you can get pensions. Your unions are legal now, which is the thing that, like, you know, hadn't happened before. And this is essentially, you know, this is essentially a counterinsurgency tool. Um, the, the 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 goal of this is to stop people from 
you know, doing the kinds of revolts that were happening in the 1930s. But by the 1970s, it's becoming very clear that this sort of detente, like, can't, it can't really be maintained because it's too expensive for sort of the capitalist states to maintain and trying to maintain both. Well, and, and, you know, the secondary thing here is, is, you know, okay, so this deal specifically goes out to white men, right? Now, in, throughout the 60s and 70s, you get a bunch of other people who are not white men uh, attempting to enter the workplace, attempting to get the same bargain. And, you know, they're in a lot of ways significantly more militant, and this causes enormous amounts of internal strife. You get, you know, the U.S. is murdering the Black Panthers. You get similar stuff in the U.K. And the neoliberals basically are... The people who just fully called this detente off and are, you know, essentially going to return to full-scale class war. And so now now we are, we are finally getting to Reagan and Thatcher. And one day we will do a full episode about how Ronald Reagan and a weird shadowy cabal of Italian intelligence services rigged the 1980 election by planting fake stories about Jimmy Carter's brother in the press. Which is... Do you, have you heard that story, uh, Garrison? No, but it sounds like regular media manipulation that happens all the time now. Yeah, yeah, it's it's yeah. There's 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 a whole through line there because you know a lot of those like same kind of intelligence tactics are going to be used to sell the Iraq War, and there's there's this whole sort of thing. Then you know there's also the the specific Italian angle of uh yeah the Italian states being run by this rogue Masonic lodge led by a fascist, and it's it's a time. There's this whole lot going on there, but that's you know I'm just I'm just thinking like Hunter Biden laptop and all of that. Yeah, yeah, stuff. It's like, oh, so that's just the same playbook. Yeah, it's it's the same thing, except like they were like actual intelligence people running it instead of just sort of like whatever Tucker Carlson. Yeah, is. <laughs> Tucker Carlson and Glenn Greenwald trying to get people to like care about this thing that just nobody gives a single shit about. Yeah, you know, it, it was it was, but the the eighties version of it was significantly more effective, and the, you know, the the product of this is that Reagan sort of. Reagan finds like the secret sauce for right wing politics, which had kind of you know, in 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 some ways, Nixon had been trying to develop, but hadn't quite gotten right. Which is no, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he figures out that you know if if you want to do neoliberalism, if you want to destroy the unions, if you want to destroy the welfare state, the way you do it is basically a combination of sort of racist tax and welfare recipients, and you mobilize new religious right, and this is extremely effective. And it's but I, th- I think it's also interesting and worth noting that. You know, if if we go all the way back to episode one, like this is this is Ropke's like white nationalism, like sort of German white nationalism thing. Is this is explicitly what Ropke's sort of strategy for implementing neoliberalism was? The problem is he was German and Catholic, which meant that like it could never work in the U.S. But you know, you get Reagan, suddenly you get the American version of it that is you know white but American, and then also works off of sort of, of off of the sort of mass Protestantism in the U.S. and this becomes a force that is responsible for like almost every bad thing that exists today in some form or another a lot of them yeah i mean not, not all of them but you know thing th- things go extremely badly and you know so so reagan wins this election and then almost at exactly the same time margaret thatcher wins this wins her election in in the uk and that the combination of those two things and also, as you talked about last episode, the Volcker shock, where Volcker raises the interest rates, uh, raises the Fed interest. Becomes, so Vol- Volcker, Volcker is installed, weirdly, not by Ronald Reagan, but by Jimmy Carter, 
but is given this sort of mandate to just do whatever, literally do whatever you have to, to, to get inflation under control. The thing that he decides to do is just literally nuke the entire world economy. You know, we talked about the, the effects this had on sort of the world in the last episode, but in the US, this sets off a recession that lasts basically from like 1979 to like 1982. Um, at the height of it, it's like, it's, I think we finally got more people unemployed during the pandemic, but I'm like 80, 90% sure that between World War II and the pandemic, that was the single largest number of people who've been unemployed in the US. Which is, yeah, it was just epochal, just epochal devastation. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole thing here where the head of the AFL-CIO is literally begging Volcker, like, please don't do this. Like, we can get inflation under control after, you know, after the economy recovers. And Volcker's just like, no. The consequence of this is that you, ha- you have an economy in which there's a numerous number of people unemployed and the unions are weak. And both Reagan and Thatcher sort of see this. Now, the, 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 the unions in the UK are in a significantly better position than the American unions. Uh, Reagan is able to sort of smash the American unions very quickly. There's, there's the, the, you know, the famous air, uh, air traffic control strike where a bunch of American air traffic controllers go on strike technically illegally. And Reagan just has literally every single one of them fired and replaces them with just like, like, like people from flight school, like people who just, just like app, literally anyone he can just like pull off the street who sort of kind of knows how to, how to land an aircraft. Like they pull in people from the military. It's, it's just like this absolutely wild sort of, feet of strike breaking and then you know and when, when when that falls and that that strike fails you know the air traffic controllers well okay funnily so the air traffic controllers had actually backed reagan they were like the only union that backed reagan in the election and they immediately just get you know they get gutted for it which like <laughs> I, I have mixed feelings about because like on the one hand like yeah that's that that's what you get but on the other hand this is basically what destroys this this is the consequences of this is basically what destroys like trade unions in the US because at this at this point everyone realizes that the unions are weak and they just start you know you get to the point where employers are deliberately provoking strikes so that they can just fire all the unionized employees and it's extremely effective in in Britain the fight is a lot more intense um in in, in 1984 Thatcher cuts coal like basically Thatcher wants to provoke a fight with with the coal unions and so she basically wants to shut down a whole bunch of coal production and fire like 20,000 miners. And the miners go on strike and they go on strike for over a year. But Thatcher had basically stockpiled enough coal to stave off the worst effects of the strike. And then she makes these like incredibly elaborate network of deals with like, she's like these, this whole scab driver, like union, like basically, basically this whole network of scab drivers, to like make sure you can move the coal around while the strike's going on. There's, there's all of this stuff. And, you know, and, and she eventually is able to crush the coal strike. And this also this just completely annihilates like the, the British trade union movement. I mean, union participation, I think Dream Thatcher's term alone falls by 50 percent. And it's gotten way worse since then. So so with, with those two incidents, the air traffic control and the coal, did, did those just kind of make people be disillusioned or did that just like pave the way for similar tactics to be acceptable for every other union that tried to do the same thing? Both, and then the other thing was fear, because, you know, so with the air traffic controllers, right, the air traffic controllers are, you know, these are the most highly skilled, like, people, people, in, they're, they're, these are a bunch of people who are incredibly highly skilled, and they're in, they're in, they're in a logistics industry, right? So, you know, in theory, these are the people who have, like, the, 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 the maximum amount of impact if they were to go on strike. 
Yeah. And when Reagan shows that you can literally just fire 24,000 people of like the, the most highly skilled sort of workers in the, in the U.S., you can fire them and just break the strike and nothing will happen. And, you know, the, the result is total defeat and none of these people ever work again. That basically spreads this massive wave of fear through the union movements because, you know, if they can fire those guys, they can fire anyone. And then, you know, the, the, the employers just start doing it. And the other thing that's been happening here is that for really since the, the end of the 40s, the unions have kind of – so we'll, we'll talk about this more in, in, in an interview that's going to come out probably next week about the, sort of the history of the American union movement. But American unions basically – so American union, like the union movement was built by radical organizers, and in the 40s – and sort of moving on from there, all these people get expelled from the labor movement, and labor fights this basically incredibly intense battle against its own left flank. And you have, you know, like for example, in in there's this thing called the the the, the Dodge Revolutionary Union movement, right? Which is a bunch of mostly black workers in Detroit who are, you know, they're 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 forming unions and they're going on strike, but they're also fighting against against the uh, the UAW because the UAW is cooperating too closely with the bosses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's 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 these you know there's there's basically this battle between like not even just uh, basically between the unions ranked and file and the radicals and the sort of business union management. And in fighting that battle, the unions had basically like massively weakened themselves. And then you know and by 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 the time you hit the eighties. Especially in the U.S., the unions are just sort of a shell of their former selves, and and Reagan just sort of like smashes them aside. And then Thatcher, the British unions are much stronger, but you know, I mean, Th- Thatcher's preparing to like like there's she she has plans to like the army is going to come in and suppress the strike. There's these and especially there's there's just I mean just an absolutely incredible amount of police violence. Um, that's, you know, I mean, this is, this is something that had like happened before during strikes, but the, 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 the level of intensity of it is just like massively increased. And there, there's also another thing that's happening basically at the same time with this, which is squeezing the unions from the other side, which is there's this, I, I guess you could call it like an, an internal class war inside the ruling class. Between well, specifically inside inside of the sort of corporate management, between the sort of traditional like manager CEO class and the sort of like I, I guess you could call them I don't know the, the 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 sort of Wall Street finance bank types, and so yeah. so yeah so what, you know, one of the other things that that happens at the end of you know at, basically after the war is the, the sort of class compromise I was talking about like this this happens inside of the company too. And people start to see the corporation as like a social institution. It has, you know, it's like, well, okay, so there's this alliance between middle management and uh, and the workers. And, you know, it's like, okay, so we, we both work with each other. And, you know, the compromise is that you guys get to have unions, but the unions won't sort of disrupt production. We'll all work together and we'll just make like, I don't know, we'll, we'll make really, really good ballpoint pens together. And so, yeah, you, you have this alliance between sort of middle management and and these unions and, you know, and this, this is embedded into the structure of the corporation because, you know, you not, you not only have the unions, but you have corporations paying pensions. What, one of the, the, the things that, that Reagan does is that Reagan starts, you know, Reagan does this, this massive series of financial deregulations. And the other part of this agreement basically had been that like the, the, the high level finance class had sort of stayed out of the way of management 
And so management, I kind of like, you know, the, the, you, you get this like this independent sort of CEO class that, that's that's a, a distinct thing that, you know, that they're, they're people who come up through the company, who are managers and they work their way to the top. And this is a distinct thing from sort of the finance people who are like, yeah, they're, they're not supposed to be allowed like, you know, to touch production. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. In, in the 1980s, the finance people start to look at this and go, wait, hold on. Why are we not running things? And the finance people have, well, because they, they have two things on their side. One, they have a sort of neoliberal ideology. And the second thing they have is, so Michael Milken, he, he figures out that how to do this thing called a leverage buyout option. It's, 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 a, it's a kind of complicated financial instrument. The, the short and simple explanation of what it is, is he figures out a way to basically go into a bunch of debt. And he, 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 gets, he gets people to give him a bunch of money like in, in the form of these bonds. And then he uses it to just buy out entire companies. He he buys fifty one percent of the company, and if you own fifty one percent of the company, now you control it. You have a controlling interest, and so he 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 goes in and he just he just raises the stock prices of all these companies. And now you know, but now he he's gone into an enormous amount of debt, right? In order to buy in order to buy this company, and so you know, in order to pay off that debt, he just starts strip mining the company. And so he starts, you know, anything that can be sold for money that he can put in his pocket to pay off his debt starts getting sold. And, you know, every, every, anything the corporate, the, the company is doing, it doesn't immediately make money or doesn't immediately raise the stock price gets cut. And so, you know, there, 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 there are, there are two major things that uh, a, a company has that don't immediately make money and don't raise the stock price. And that is pensions and research and development. And hmm. this, this has, you know, this, 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 this becomes known as the, the, the sort of, this is the hostile takeover wave. This is. It gets rebranded as mergers and acquisitions in the '90s, but it's it's this huge sort of wave that sweeps corporate, sweeps corporate America, and it turns the corporation from this kind of social body where it's like, well, everyone's cooperating, and companies sort of have this responsibility to like uh, provide for their workers and provide sort of for like the social good into literally the only in, like the, the single entire purpose of, of of any company is to raise the stock price, and that, that this goes, yeah. Yeah, this that is, is really bad. <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know the, the the part about it that's awful is that you know okay, so all all literally all a corporate raider has to do in order to buy out one of these companies is be able to is be able to offer a price for the stock that's higher than the stock price of the company. Now, and this means even so, there there there's there's a very famous series of battles. They they buy out an enormous number of companies, get bought out, and just strip mines like this. And you know, and everything again. These are these are very very profitable companies, right? These are companies with large research and development budgets. These are companies that are making enormous amounts of money, and they're just completely destroyed in order to sort of just like satiate these just like absolute ghoul corporate like vulture raider people. This is you know, if you remember, uh, you might be too young for this, but Mitt Romney's campaign for so yeah, one one of the reasons why Mitt Romney loses. Is that like he he he's one of these guys like he he's he's like he's the big bang capital guy and everyone yeah. kind of looks at him and goes like you are the reason we like got into this mess in the first place but the the, pro the problem is that these people have enough money and they have enough power they're able to do this and in order to stop them so there there there's a mass there's a massive fight between a, a bunch of people try to take over a uh, Goodyear who are, you know they make the tires they have the blips and Goodyear CEO is like fanatically opposed to all of this because you know he he's he's from the old ceo crop who's like well okay we're here to like make things instead of you know increase stock prices 
But the problem is the only way he can stave off the Raiders is by increasing his stock price. And the only way to increase stock prices is by doing the things the corporate raiders are already doing. So he starts slashing yep. pensions, he starts slashing yep. research development budgets. Yeah, and this and this this sort of cycles because now you have you know there's there there's it's it's, it's you're not only having pressure from you know like the government that's that's anti union, the corporations themselves are being forced to become more anti union because they're you know they now have this pressure on them from the top down from from these sort of these sort of finance schools, and the finance schools in a lot of ways, just the perfect neoliberal subjects, right? Because they, they, they only see the world in money. They see everything as a market. They, they literally think that like, they, they are like these, like shamans. If, if, if there's a really good ethnography that I've plugged before on here called liquidated, uh, an, an ethnography of, wait, yeah. Liquidated an ethnography of wall street where an anthropologist goes onto wall street and works there for a while. And then you can talk much of interviews. Doesn't that doesn't logical stuff. And, and the, the way they talk about the market, they, they literally talk about it as if they're channeling it. Right, like it's like something, and they're like a oh, shaman. Yeah, these are yeah. These are the these are that's what's one of the new gods of of our uh, world. That yeah, that's I mean that's that, that's not a uncommon turn of phrase to describe stuff like this. Yeah, and and but what what I, what I think is interesting about it though is that you know th- that conception of the market of like every person is just like a pure like completely socially unbound like thing of capital that you oh well okay if you lose your job here you can just move to another firm right so this makes sense inside of the context of wall street because these people like like these wall street firms they have they have like like 30 percent turnover a year and so all these people are constantly being fired and shuffled onto the next job and fired and shuffled onto the next job and so you know they so they 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 do they do this very common sort of fallacy thing where they assume that because this is the way that it works for them that this is the way it's going to work for everyone else and they, they genuinely, and a lot of these people genuinely believe this. They're like, well, okay, so the things we're going to, the things that we're about to do, like, you know, when we destroy these workers' entire lives, when we, we, you know, when we close their factories, when we take their pensions, when we literally destroy, like, every community and every, like, thing that's ever existed in their lives, they're like, oh, they'll just pick themselves up and go to another place and they'll be fine. Because, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, a Wall Street finance school, like, yeah, that's, that's what happens when you get fired every three months. And so these people, these people basically take control of of the entire corporate sector. They do, they do this very quickly by you know they they start this in the, in the sort of early eighties, and uh, Milliken, the, the guy who comes up with the the, the, the sort of junk bonds uh, leverage buyout scheme, like he he goes to jail for I think securities fraud. They get him for fraud, but it doesn't it doesn't lot, matter. The damage a lot is of done. those guys got oh got yeah for securities fraud. <laughs> yeah. All of these people, like against again, all of these people are just doing crime. Like no, yeah, that, that's like how even, this is how uh, finance standards. This is how uh, this, this, this is how the Action Park guy got kicked out. Got kicked out of yep. Wall Street. <laughs> is is Yo, doing and, doing all the same stuff. And again, I I want to put this out. Like the stuff they're doing is so illegal that like even the Reagan administration was like, no, oh, we yeah. have to prosecute you. Like yeah. it's like <laughs> this is the this is the Ronald Reagan Justice Department, and they're like, mm. it was it was so much crime. Yeah, it's it's really bad, and and you know the the result of this is just basically the total evisceration of of the working class, just like as a movement, and you know all of the left wing parties are sort of reshaped by this, and you know it, and you know we, we've been focusing on on the U.S. and uh and the U.K. here, but this is not the only place this happens, and you know so one of the you know like this this happens this also this also starts happening like in in socialist states. 
Um, and we, we talked about this in more detail in our interview with Arnesa Kusutra about Bosnia, but uh, one of the big things that Milosevic is doing in Yugoslavia in when, when he takes power and he starts like actually being a, pl- a real political force in the 1980s is he starts doing basically all of the same stuff that 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 Reagan and Thatcher are doing. He starts he starts implementing shock doctrine. He starts privatization. He starts um, like uh, marketization. He starts cutting, cutting cutting price controls. He starts sort of he starts doing. I don't know if decollectivization is quite the right word because Yugoslavia's economic system is complicated and weirder than uh the ussr's but you know he does this and this is one of the things that starts yugoslavia's death spiral because you know you have this enormous economic devastation from the increase in oil prices from the oil shock and then that gets paired with you know the the economic devastation from everyone losing their benefits people losing the pensions uh the state-owned industries going under and getting privatized um the sort of like collective ownership structures imploding and the 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 product of this is that you know Milosevic looks at this and is like okay how can I stay in power and his answer is just genocidal not it's just genocidal nationalism and this sort of collapse of sort of state and social life is you know and and the leaders at the top realizing that they can weaponize sort of nationalism is one of the things that leads directly to the Bosnian genocide now Towards the end of the 80s, the whole Soviet bloc starts coming apart. Um, yeah, you know, the Berlin Wall falls, and eventually, you know, the Soviet Union dissolves. And the people who are trying to end the Soviet Union, the things that they want, basically, are, like, freedom of speech, uh, the ability to, like, leave the country, and basically, like, Scandinavian-style social democracy. It and seems like re- reasonable requests yeah, yeah. coming from the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, I mean, th- these these people, like... You know, this is these these you know, like they 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 wanted to live in Scandinavia, and instead they got uh, hey, welcome to the U.S., but like even worse. Yeah, that and so yeah, that yeah, happens if you're not careful. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really bad, and you know what what they get instead is just these this enormous wave of privatizations. Uh, the welfare state just vanishes, and you know this this causes basically like total societal collapse um like one of my one of my professors and this this happens basically across the whole soviet bloc one of my professors in college i, th- I think she was from bulgaria um she she told me about how during the 90s like when she, when she was growing up like she and her family would just the, the only thing they had to eat was raw millet because there's no food there's there's literally no food anywhere the entire economy is collapsed nobody has any money and so you know it's like well okay everyone's just eating raw grain because you know that that's 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 the only thing you can you can you have to survive, and you know it's this it, it's it's literally so bad that in Russia it causes the single largest life expectancy drop in post World War Europe. It's, it's like like it's the life expectancy decreases by like four years because so many people die from this. Um, you know, and and one one of the one of the ways this happens is that there's the so the the, the way they're they're going to deal with like the state owned industry thing is they they. Okay, I've never been able to figure this figure out if it was like they they actually took Murray Rothbard's plan for this, or if they just independently developed Murray Rothbard's plan for for de- for dissolving state-owned industries, which is give like everyone who worked in it a share of the company. And so they do this right, and everyone has these shares, but these shares are just like paper, and you can't eat this paper. So a, a, a bunch of sort of like organized crime guys and the the people who've been you know like like the sort of the people who've been richer or like had been sort of 
connected party people who are just like, I'm just going to cash out, start, you know, just, just going through cities and they're, they'll, you know, they'll be like, okay, we'll give you a pair of jeans. Or like, we'll give you some food if you give us their share. And, you know, everyone, people just give up their shares. And the result of this is that like, just every industry in Russia immediately falls under the control of just, just like absolutely psychotic oligarchs. And, you know, the, the West is absolutely cheering this on. That this this whole process is is engineered by just a bunch of just like pure neoliberal ghoul like Harvard like weird Harvard grads who get sent into Russia and who are like ah we're gonna we're gonna run the Russian economy and we're gonna like fix everything and they just just absolutely destroy it and you know the the West has this thing with they're they're you know they're they're cheering on this whole process they have this thing about how like ah we're, everyone has to do belt tightening and it's, you're, you're gonna suffer for a bit and it'll all be worth it and meanwhile Boris Yeltsin is just completely drunk off his ass like shelling the parliament with tanks while like the US press is cheering and you know the the, the sort of like you know the, the the tragedy of this is like it's not really like Russia got like more free. You know, like they they still they still torture and disappear anarchists in secret prisons. Like, you know, they're st- they still just like randomly assassinate political dissidents with in- through increasingly bizarre like poison bullshit. They, yeah, they sure do. Yeah, but you know, the, the 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 big difference is that a bunch of Harvard grads made an indescribable amount of money, and now no one has any pensions. Um, and there's 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 this great like there's this great Russian joke from this period that goes. I was talking about the communists. Uh, everything they ever told us about communism was a lie, but everything they ever told us about capitalism was absolutely true. Yeah, that, that <laughs> seems like, to be that seems to be roughly accurate. Yeah, it's, it, it's basically true. And you know, and, and the, the 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 product of sort of neoliberalism coming to Russia is that by 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 the end of the nineties, Russia is just literally controlled by the mob and the, these sort of monstrous oligarchs. And Putin's campaign is like, I'm better than the mob. And I will bring the I will bring the mob and the oligarchs under control, and this is you know th- this is how Putin takes power because and, and he has failed yeah. to live up to that promise. <laughs> what? I, to to be fair, to be fair, the, the you are significantly less likely to just like randomly be kidnapped and ransomed. Not me. No, I have I have written for a website he does not like. I cannot. That's true. That's true. Well, if, 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 if you other, piss off, other pe- if you piss off people. Putin, yeah, if you piss off Putin, you might be held for ransom. But it's like you know the number of random people who don't do anything political who are just like randomly held for yeah, ransom probably. did kind of go down a bit. And like that's yeah. Good. I mean, all right, all right. Y- y- you gotta hand it to Putin. Okay, I give him. Yeah. Well, okay. The 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 the, 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 the thing I'll hand to Putin is that he restored the state's monopoly on violence. Now that's not a good thing. <laughs> it's now the monopoly on violence thing, but, is, but he yeah. did it. All yeah, right. he well he did it, and you know this this was the basis of sort of his his power and political support was that and sort of nationalism. And this is like you know, and and there's always this the, the sort of liberal line on 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 Putin is like, oh, he's an SKGB guy, and like, oh, it's still communism again, and it's like, no, yeah, yeah, like no, no, and and th- th- this this brings me back to the single thing that I, I i need everyone to understand about neoliberalism which is that neoliberalism does not decrease the size of the state like there 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 are more there were more bureaucrats now in the russian state than there were under the soviet union no like, and it definitely in a def- in order for it to operate it definitely extends drastically yeah. the like the hands of the state in yep, terms yep. of like 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 military police law enforcement yeah like all those things in order to keep this weird market-driven thing alive you need to have a lot of like enforcement on people who don't have 
but both both people who like actually make money, and then but mostly people who don't make very much money. Um, yeah. So it, it it increases not only like the bureaucratic state, but also like the enforcement arm of the state. Um, yeah, and I think there's 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 two interesting ways this happens. One is that. Well, okay. There's three ways this happens. One is that anytime someone says they're gonna they're gonna do deregulation, like deregulation does not mean that they're going to decrease the number of regulations there are. What it means is that uh, the the regulations are bad for this company, and so they're they're going they're going to they're going to add more regulations in a way that is good for this company. And the thing is, th- this actually this you know this net increases the size of the state, right? They're they're not like they're not like they're not decreasing the number of laws or whatever. No, they're you know they're 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 writing like incredibly like inc- absolutely incomprehensible banking legislation that like lets banks charge like interest rates that previously only organized crime could do, and then there, there's there's another aspect of this which is that you know so the the the, the welfare that remains right you know becomes means tested, and you know that means that there's so you have the bureaucracy right that like gives you things. And then you have another bureaucracy on top of that that decides whether or not you should be allowed to do the thing. It puts you, you know, there's this, this is just, just this like process of abject humiliation that you have to go yeah, through to receive anything. Yeah, from the state. And it's like, and it, that sucks. And then because that is so awful, there's another layer of bureaucracy, which is like social workers and stuff, whose job it is in large part is to help you bypass the, the, the second layer of bureaucracy. And so that creates another layer. Yeah, there's, 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 there's so much. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And but but this is you know this 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 is one of the things the neoliberals do, which is okay. So you, you know you you have you have you have your two doctrines, right? You have the thing they actually believe, which is enormous bureaucratic military state, and then you have the thing they claim to believe, which is oh the state needs to be smaller, uh, uh, the state needs to be decentralized, the state shouldn't interfere in the market, and so whenever whenever like the things that they do get too bad, they have this other thing they can turn to to go oh yeah uh, the, the reason there's too much bureaucracy is because the state's getting involved too much elect us and we will get rid of the bureaucracy and then you elect them and they make the state bigger and you get you know you get this sort of perpetual cycle. I think the reason people get confused by this is that when when people when most people think of the state, right? They they think of the state as something that provides services. You know, the, the quintessential thing a state does is, is build roads. Roads. Right. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I mean, we, we you know, when we can talk about how like the US building roads probably doomed the entire earth from climate change. Oh, yeah, no, but, like the the way that we've done roads around cars and the type of things we make roads, yeah, it, it it's horrible, but yeah. yeah, it's awful. Yeah. But but there there's 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 another thing about roads which is interesting, which is that roads are you know, so the original reason why states built roads was so they can move armies around. And and this comes back to the, the, the core of what a state is, right? There is nothing in the actual core definition of a state, which is basically it's a hierarchical localized monopoly on violence, right? There's yeah. nothing in that that has that like says at all the state has to do anything for you, right? Like if if you know if 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 two hundred guys with guns show up and seize a place, right, they can create a state. They don't have to give you anything. The state is the, you know, the, the the fundamental core of the state is just a bunch of armed people who can order people around, and you know. But people people sort of can people sort of confuse the two. And the the and neoliberalism's entire thing is increasing the increasing the military. You know, the, the part of the state that takes things from you at gunpoint, and decreasing the part of the state that like gives you things. And you know, uh, one one of the, the there's. One one of the other things that that happens in this period is that it, labor increasingly stops being about making or doing anything and just becomes pure guard labor. 
So, you know, the 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 last big neoliberal project that doesn't really get talked about as a neoliberal project ever is that mass incarceration is a neoliberal project. It started under under Nixon and under Carter, but you know, so when when Reagan takes office, the the, the American prison population is is about three hundred twenty nine thousand. Uh, when he leaves office, he has basically doubled it to uh, six hundred twenty seven thousand. We have now Jeez. more than doubled it again. And it, you know, it, it, it basically, it, it, you know, whenever you get a large neoliberal administration, they, they you know, they double it, right? Uh, it basically doubles again uh, between, between the Clinton administration, you know, and it keeps accelerating. And you know, this is this is this is the other thing that that neoliberalism brings in, which is that okay, so neoliberalism produces this enormous population of people who don't have any jobs, have no opportunities whatsoever, are just screwed. So what do you do with them? And the answer is slavery. And basically everywhere that you that you see neoliberalism, you see massive increases in the, in the prison population. Especially, like the U.S. is 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 the, by far the worst example of this. But this happens, you know, this happens basically across the world. And what 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 you see is it, in place of you know, it's, it's, this, this is this is one of the things that drives politics in in sort of in rural regions in the U.S., which is that you have these places that used to sort of have industries, used to particularly like coal mining things like that, and it gets replaced by prisons. Because prisons, you know, having a prison in your sort of rural town is is the only way to sort of ensure that you have a large economic base. And so, you know, like local local city councils are, you know, incredibly pro-prison because it's like, oh, well, the prison will bring you jobs. And, you know, this means that, okay, so some, some of the people, a lot of the people who are prison guards are just, you know, fascists. But there's also people who are prison guards who normally would just be workers. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, who have just been sort of, you know, there's nothing left, right? And they, they're fighting, you know, uh, uh, Mike Davis talks about this. They're fighting this just in- incredibly desperate, ferocious struggle to, like, stay in the places they love and stay with their families and stay with their friends and stay with their communities. And the only way they can do this is, you know, by becoming part of this, like, just the neoliberal hell state. And, you know, they don't like it either. But that's, you know, that's what neoliberalism is, right? Is you no longer have a job. The only job available to you is picking up a gun and pointing it at someone who is exactly the same as you, except, you know, they've been thrown into the slavery part of the system instead of the people holding the guns at the slavery part of the system. And one of the things that that, that happens a lot, the people just really conflate about what neoliberalism is, is they confuse it with libertarianism. Yes, and they're not the same thing, and and it, it, this this is a this is a very confusing problem because, well, a the term neoliberal doesn't get used in the U.S. all that much. No, and, and B, when people use it, they usually use it to mean something bad, and that's just about it. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, and and also another part of the problem is that you know, even if you go into like the Montpellier Society, right, which is you know this this is this is the arch neoliberal institution, just to like basically like a think tank generator there are there are libertarians in there there, there are there are anarcho-capitalists in in the Montpellier society and the Montpellier society is fighting this sort of constant internal battle between the people who actually believe the things that they say publicly like who actually believe you should have a small state blah 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 blah, blah and the people who understand that the, the all the small state stuff is just like stuff you tell the masses in order to get them to like slash welfare things while you just hire more cops and probably the single biggest distinction between libertarians and and the neoliberals is about border control. 
Now, if 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 you listen to neoliberals on Twitter, or you listen to neil or you listen to libertarians, right? Uh, capitalism is supposed to have open borders. It's supposed to be free movement of people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you look at literally everything every neoliberal government has ever done, it's exactly the opposite. It's they don't like that. Yeah, no. Yeah, they hate it. And, and, and you know the the this whole thing about like, oh, you need workers to. Uh, uh, yeah, if if you, if you if you let workers from other countries go into into the U.S., like oh they'll 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 decrease wages, blah blah blah. blah. So the, the the period in which the U.S. like had strong unions and strong wages and stuff was the period where there was like basically no militarization on the Mexican border. I mean, there were some, and you know it, there there's 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 a buildup sort of during the Vietnam War, and I mean there 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 sort of been one uh, back like around the Mexican Revolution era, but. You know, it's it's nothing. It's literally nothing like it is today. Today, the U.S. border is this just absolute hellscape. Um, I mean, just like there's 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 this enormous perimeter of the U.S. border where just the Constitution doesn't apply, where like the Bill of Rights just doesn't exist. If 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 you're if you're if you're close enough to the border, it's just it's all suspended. Uh, it's it's not entirely suspended, but like basically the the border patrol can just do whatever the fuck they want to you. And you know, like this, this, this is this is how the border patrol was able to be deployed in Portland, right? Because Portland's technically on the border, and so border patrol has increased powers there. And the, the the actual goal is so people people are always going to move, right? And what what the neoliberals figured out was that you know these 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 enormous migrant labor populations, the 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 best way you can exploit them is if they're just absolutely terrorized by just this you know in, incredible sort of ferociously hostile murderous just border regime run by fascists and it works like they they kill they kill enormous numbers of people they do horrible things they put people in concentration camps they sterilize people they like they they sexually assault children they they disappear people they like steal people's babies and this is you know this is what neoliberalism is right this this is what it actually is in practice this is you know this, like this is the, this is the this is the policy that is imposed by neoliberal states, and I think I, I want to end on that, and I want to end on a note about what the quintessential sort of figure of neoliberalism is, because I think you know in in the neoliberals' mind, right, the sort the, the 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 quintessential neoliberal figure is like the small entrepreneur who's like, uh, who's you know turned their own creativity and like harnessed it into like the ability to create value and you know they're creating things for the world and they're enriching themselves yeah. and i think a lot of leftists think of it as like the quintessential neoliberal is you know a chicago a chicago school of economics person yeah and i want to suggest that the quint the single quintessential like neoliberal figure is a riot cop and specifically specifically the the you know if if you know every everyone by now knows what a riot cop looks like, right? I I, I want everyone to go back and even even from from like two thousand one, look at what a riot police officer looks like in two thousand one versus what they look like now, and then go back to even like the nineteen sixties and look look at look at what those guys look like. Yeah, no, looking at footage from the sixties of riot cops is like really depressing because you're like. I could take these guys. Yeah. They're, they're just wearing t-shirts. Yeah. Like, they're just it's guys. Like, it's, it's way more of a fair fight. They have t-shirts and sticks. We could have t-shirts and sticks. That is a, that, that's like the, a riot in the sixties. It sounds like now they also, in some cases will, will be much more willing just to murder tons of people. Now yeah. there, there is that exception, but 
in like a big street brawl, it is it is generally a, a bit of a fair fight. Yeah, I mean, I I will say also, sixties uh, police love love dogs. They love like sicking dogs oh, on people, which is really bad. Yeah. Um, no, but yeah, but, I'm, I'm 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 looking at the looking at the, at the 2001 riot cops, and yeah, they are not yeah. nearly as robo copy. Nope. nope, as I, I, what they are now. During during the during the Chilean uprising in 2019, I, I was talking to someone in, in Chile, and they they were talking about how, like, they they were describing it as like the the cops were just like like something out of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like it was like fighting the Shredder. They're, they're just, yeah, you know, they, they, yeah, I mean, they like, had these like even. Even even the LAPD riot cops for the nineteen ninety two riots, they're also still just wearing like yeah. colored shirts. Like they, they they just have they just have colored shirts and one stick. Um, yeah, and now versus now they're wearing yeah. their whatever dumb armor they have. Yeah, but you know, th- and this is this is you know, and this this is this is if if you want to trace the path of neoliberalism, it's this. It's a lot of the army surplus stuff that like the police have gotten a lot of it's really scary a lot of it also sucks like a lot of those atvs every like everyone who's ever had to drive them hates them but you know like like my my like absolutely tiny dinky town has a bear cat that and that shouldn't that shouldn't be no it shouldn't i, I know where it is too <laughs> like, I, I, I know where the bear cat is it's like there shouldn't be a bear cat this, yeah, this, this, this my town is a tax cutout like it's it's literally a tax carve out. Like that that's the reason that's the only reason it exists, and it has a bear cat. And like yeah, no. you know, this is this is sort of the this is the consequence of 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 what neoliberalism is. And uh, uh, Vicky Osterwell talked about this on 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 the Occupy episode. But it's it's the cops become more like become more like the army. The army becomes more like the cops. And you know the the the, the result is this sort of panopticon surveillance states where like if you and seven people stand on a sidewalk 16 cops will show up yeah they've they've really uh excelled in making the capitalist realism doomer philosophy be almost like the base philosophy for anyone who takes two seconds to think about the world that they live in yep and you know and this has been really effective in a lot of ways but you know, uh, D- David Graeber point, pointed this out, which is that the problem with doing this is that, you know, okay, so like the, the, the enormous amount of guard labor, right? The enormous amount of sort of prison guards, the enormous amount of, like that's all unproductive labor, right? You know, you, you, yeah. you, you, make, you make some of that money back off, the, the companies make some of that money back off the slave labor, right? But like, but that's, in general, they're, the guards aren't adding anything. They're not, yeah, they're, yeah, they're, not right. they're not producing any, yeah. any goods, um, and not really much service either. No, and and, and this is and, you know this, this this is a problem, right? Because because neoliberalism is profit driven, and so you know what what you have is is that the system has a choice between either it functioning, or it making it appear as if it's the only system, and it chooses yeah, the that, latter. That, 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 basically yeah, that, that, every that's time. the thing. Yeah. Is that it's 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 kind of profit driven, but honestly, the more that I the more that you've been talking, like no, it's just about eliminating any alternative. So it's not, not yeah. even profit driven. It's that it's forcing itself to be the only acceptable option. Yeah, and that's and, how it gets so much of its power. Yeah, but but you know the 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 problem with this is that all of that sort of ideological coercion only lasts as long as the police can hold the streets, which and, is uh, which uh, is they're good uh, at it. They are. They are. But, sometimes they're decent. You know, one one of the story I want to end on is so there's you know there there, there has been in some with more varying degrees of success there has actually been 
resistance to neoliberalism. And there are places where people have won. There people there are places where people have run the IMF out. There's people there's places where people have, have you know defeated coups where they've like you know where, where they've where they've 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 successfully sort of taken over the state. There's places where you know I mean there's 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 places like you know we're, we're going to talk about a couple of things in Mexico, but yeah I mean there's there's the Zapatistas who have you know are constantly besieged but have carved yeah. out a territory yeah. in which they have you know like totally defeated the Mexican almost totally defeated the Mexican state. And I think what, one of the sort of forgotten incidents in, in, in the 2000s is this uprising in Oaxaca where the, you have, you have, there's, an, there's an enormous sort of – a bunch of teachers are going on strike and you know, Oaxaca's uh, teachers unions are enormously powerful, incredibly radical. And so you know, they, 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 one of the things they do is that they go into the city and they, they have these, like, these giant sort of protest tents that they showed up and they have these like, giant camps. And in 2006, the police attack them. And so they start attacking, and the, and the, the teachers fight back. And so you you have there's this you know this 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 massive battle erupts, um, it just in the city. And you know this is this is all the, the police attack at like three in the morning, right? But they can't they, they there's not enough of them to clear the teachers out, and the teachers hold, and they hold and they hold, and the, the the city of Oaxaca wakes up to this just enormous battle in the streets between a bunch of just like teachers, and the cops, and when Oaxaca wakes up. They are just like, what the fuck is this? And you know, they they join the teachers and they go fight the cops, and they 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 they're largely successful in like like they they beat them. They they drive they drive the police from the city, and you know, and and for 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 several months, the city is basically under the control of these like direct democratic councils, and like there there are these there are these things called, they call them mega marshes, which is a million people. We'll do a march through the streets, and the police the police just can't stop them because you know there's a million people, and yeah, that's yeah, that's and, the only way that I've seen it be successful, whether it be you know just a sure sheer mass of people driving cops out of a police station, or you know an entire city rallying behind people like in in, in Portland when the feds came. It's like you need to have like everybody to show up because yeah. they could fight two hundred like. Yep. Twink anarchists, very yeah. pretty easily, you usually. Um, but when you have like all of the moms and dads and regular people come up, that is much more of a complicated uh fight on on like on on their end because yep. yeah, we'll still have the teenage frontliners throwing sh- sh- shit at the cops, but when you have like regular regular people behind them, that creates the whole media narrative to be something totally different and. It got the feds to back down in Portland when Trump really wanted to that yep. to not happen. And I think also the, the thing the thing that was incredible about Oaxaca is it wasn't just people sort of like standing behind them, like really like tens of thousands of people just joined the fight in 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 a way that you know it like and if you know if if there's like fifty thousand people in a city throwing bricks at you like you 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 either have to start shooting into the crowd or or, or try to hold yeah, them yeah you can't you you can't yeah, and, 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 and you even know, when you start shooting into the crowd yeah they tried it that, and it didn't work it was a disaster it made it it made it even worse yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the crowds grew larger and like you know one of the things that happens is uh the 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 the, the, the revolutionaries try to like you know they, they they go to the radio station or like okay will you broadcast this the radio station says no and so they did they start seizing radio stations all over all over the city incredibly and, big. yeah and they, they, yeah and then you know and they had they had these they had these like bonfires at the edge of the city where everyone sort of meets and like they're they're they're, they're sending they're, they're they're sending radio like messages like over, over over the radio stations they've taken over from like barricade to barricade and you know it, 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 eventually the police and like the like the, the the mexican army shows up 
And at that point, they're able to sort of retake the city. And there's a couple of other things happening in Mexico at this point that are sort of, there's this giant sort of left-wing tide. And the way that it gets stopped is that the Mexican army basically fully kicks off the, the drug war and they kill, I mean, I, 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 I've, I've seen numbers up to like 800,000 people in 10 years. They just, they, they, bas- they basically genocide the indigenous population of, of, of Mexico. And, you know, I, I think, I think that's, that's, that's sort of a place to leave it because wow, on what hand, a, what, 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 yeah, what a warming hopeful note to end the show on. Yeah. But I mean, I think, I think it is, it is worth, it is, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's worth thinking about is one, it is possible to beat the police Two, yes. the ruling class will literally bathe the entire country in blood like they, also, they, they the will American destroy their own country. Army is yeah. different. Um, the way I mean, this gets discussed in season one. Yeah, well, happen here, yeah. but like the way the American military works, I think they'll be less likely to do that. Yeah, well, I mean, and I, I, I want, I want to put this out. Like, so what, the, the thing that they, the, the army doesn't directly murder people. What they do is, what they do is basically like they, 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 they set off a bunch of fighting between the cartels, and then oh, and the cartels okay, okay. fucking murder enormous numbers of people you know we, it, we it, will it, happily it, murder each other but yeah 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 okay. well and, and also it. you know i mean it, it's it's also this is this you know this is the thing with the mexican state it's it's very very difficult to tell where the cartels stop and where the mexican that, army begins is, because a true. lot of them are the same thing and like you well, know there, there's yeah that but, is, you know, that that's, is that's what neoliberalism is hopeful note to end on and yeah just but, just to make the ending a bit better i, I do want to say i i'm no longer gonna call anyone a neoliberal I I made this joke in the group chat yesterday and nobody responded to it, so I was sad. So I'll say it now. I'm I'm only gonna call them uh Thomas Anderson liberals. That 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 that's, that's that is what I'm calling them now. Um, and I'll make everyone wait two seconds to understand what's going on, and then sigh, and then motion to get me out of the room. So <laughs> thank you, Chris, for uh talking about neoliberalism. Yeah. <laughs> And thank, 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 thank you all for joining us. Uh, the, this, this has been it. Could happen here. Um, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter if you so desire. If you want to uh, get, if you want, if you want yeah. people to know that you follow us and create a whole network of surveillance based, so everyone knows what you're watching and what you're listening to, to create a better picture of who you are online, so you can get get better advertisements. Yeah, follow us online. Yeah, join the Panopticon. Throw bricks at it. It'll it is great. pretty funny how they tricked everyone into carrying around GPSs wherever they go. It's it's pretty funny. Yeah, it's it's amazing. It's like everyone, oh, it's like oh, everyone, everyone, everyone in my town is like, oh, we can't get the vaccine. Uh, they have microchips in it. It's like you have a phone. It's, it's, it's hilarious <laughs> how they tricked us into carrying around speakers, cameras, and GPSs everywhere they, we go. It is really funny. It's amazing. All right. Well, All right. bye, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. Welcome to would you like a hot apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone. Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. Yeah. So yes or no on the apple pie? Woo! Ha! I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, um, the show that is normally introduced by me shouting atonally, but today I, I did like a professional, um, because today uh, myself and my colleagues Garrison and Christopher are talking to someone I'm very excited to chat with, uh, Mr. Corey Doctorow. Corey, welcome Hello. to the show. Thank you very much. It is my pleasure to be on it. Uh, it's uh, great to meet you all and to be talking to you today. Corey, you do a lot of writing about kind of technology and surveillance and uh, cultural issues around those. You're also a, an, an author. You've written some great fiction. I think today we'll probably talk most around books like Attack Service and Walk Away, but you've written a lot of wonderful stuff. Um, and you've also worked with the EFF for years and years. Um, mm -hmm. So you've, you, you're you coming at what I love about, I mean, we're going to be talking today broadly about surveillance and kind of the future of, of, of the internet. We'll probably talk about some metaverse stuff. What I love about the way in which you think and write about the future is that you're kind of coming about it from a number of angles, both as like a tech industry journalist, as a, a fiction writer imagining the future, and as somebody who's kind of weighted in as an activist to this. And mm -hmm. um, I'm kind of wondering, where do you see like the greatest potential for actual like change? Um, is it is it in kind of is it in lobbying and engaging as an activist, or is it in sort of imagining as a as a as a fiction writer? what might be. So I, I see them as adjuncts, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, diversity of tactics and all that stuff. Um, the, the thing is that tech policy arguments are often very abstract. 
uh, and they um, are only visceral for the people who would provide the kind of political will to do something about them, usually that, that comes when it's too late, right? People, people care about tech monopolies once the web is turned into five giant websites right. filled with screenshots right. of text from the other four, but not when Yahoo is on a buying spree of tech companies and we're saying, oh, that's how tech companies grow and all tech companies will grow in the future by mm-hmm. buying all their nascent competitors and rolling them up into a big vertically integrated monopoly, which is kind of how we got Facebook and Google and the rest of it. And um, you need to be able to make policy arguments to policy people, but you also need to be able to put uh, some some sinew and muscle on the bone of that highly abstract kind of argument. And and that's where fiction comes in. It's kind of a like um, uh, a, a, a fly-through of like an emotional architect's rendering of what things might look like if we get it wrong or if we change it. It preserves the sense of possibility. You know, I think one of the great enemies of change is the um, inevitabilism of capitalist realism and the idea that there is no alternative. So if you can make people believe in an alternative, then they might work for one. And certainly the opposite is true. If people don't believe there is uh, any alternative possible, they won't work for one. Why, why would you? Uh, and so all of that together, I think, is is part of how you mobilize people to care about stuff. Yeah, I mean, that makes that makes total sense. And it is it, it, it's difficult, I think, because uh, I first came into technology as a journalist and it's very difficult to get people to care about stuff. And I think in particular privacy, which there was um, it has been one of the most interesting cases of like the kind of thought leaders in in an industry freaking out over something and people not really having an issue with it because we kind of all agreed to hand over all of our data to a number of big sites. Not all, but I don't know. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. I understand the idea that like fiction is um is a much better way to try to get people to care about these things because it makes them feel as opposed to kind of reporting on I think people mm-hmm. can get kind of lost in the weeds of acquisitions and like uh, uh, pivots and you know tech companies acquiring each other and whatnot. Sure. Well, look, I think that the part of the, the the problem with privacy, the reason that we were late to wake up and do something about it, is because it was obfuscated. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've ever seen the maps of like how an ad tech stack works, the flow diagrams, uh, you know, there are some things that are complicated because. Um, there are some things that are hard to understand because they're complicated. And then there are some things that are made complicated so they will be hard to understand. Mm-hmm. And I think in the case of um, the surveillance industry, the the latter is true. And it wasn't just that they were trying to play us for suckers. They were also playing their customers for suckers, right? One of the reasons that the ad tech stack is such a snarled hairball is so that the people who buy ads and the publishers who run ads can't tell how badly they're being ripped off by their intermediaries. But this also has the side effect of making it very hard for us to know as the as the kind of inputs to that system, how our own uh, dignity and private lives and safety and integrity are being put to risk by these systems as well. Um, and, you know, it may be that people, if they had been well-informed about what was going on, they they might have been indifferent as well. But I think that when most people were very poorly informed, right, when all there mm-hmm. was was this kind of, that privacy discourse was just like stuff is being, your personal information is being siphoned up, but no kind of specifics on how that was being used and how that was being done and how it might bring you to harm. Um, 
it's not clear that that you can say that that the reason they were indifferent is because they were fully informed and didn't care if you know that they weren't fully informed, if you know that they were barely informed. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think you're absolutely right, because when the Cambridge Analytica scandal broke, which was, I think, one of the first times that there was a really huge international story that made it clear some of the consequences of all this, like it did provoke a lot of a lot of anger. Um, I, I do you worry at all that, like, there's a degree to which because it because people got tricked or however you want to frame it and it's gone, the the kind of um, financialization of people's private data of people's like personal information because that has gone so far there's a risk that people are just kind of inured to it um yeah well well i mean that kind of gets to my theory of change here which is that there is always going to be a a, a um, point of uh, uh, maximum indifference peak indifference you know um if you think about something like being a smoker uh the the likelihood that you care about uh cancer goes up the longer you smoke and the more health effects you feel. Mm-hmm. And certainly there will come a point in your life when you will only ever grow more worried about the effects of smoking on your life. But there's also a point of no return, right? If the point at which you your, your concern reaches the point where you're actually going to do something about smoking is the day you get diagnosed with stage four lung cancer, then that um, denialism can slide into nihilism. You can yeah. say, why bother, right? It's too late. It's like if if we spend years arguing about the crashing population of rhinos, and then finally there's only one left, and you say, you're right, there was a problem, you might as well say, like, why don't we eat him and find out what he tastes like? It's not like the rhinos are ever going to come back, right? And so for me, so much of the work is about shifting the point of peak indifference to the left of the point of no return on the mm-hmm. timeline so that people actually start to care earlier because it's, it's, it, if you have an, a genuine problem, right? Like um, the overcollection of our private data, the mishandling of it, the abuse of it, that genuine problem will eventually produce uh, tangible effects that are undeniable, right? That the, the, our ability to ignore it just goes monotonically down. It's the thing about the climate emergency, mm-hmm. you know, uh, even if shell, had not or Exxon had not hidden the data it had on the role that its products were playing in, in climate change in the 70s, it would have been hard to muster a sense of urgency in the 70s, right? Because the story is that in 50 years, something bad's going to happen. But here we are 50 years on, something bad is really happening and a lot mm-hmm. of people are caring about it. They still don't seem to care about it enough or maybe they've slid into nihilism. There's certainly, I think, on the part of the elites, a kind of nihilistic sense that maybe they can all retreat to like mountaintops and build yeah. fortresses and breed their children by Harrier jet, you know, and, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, that nihilism I think is, is what you get when the point of no return is passed before peak denial. Uh, and the privacy um, catastrophe that is looming in our future that we haven't quite reached yet. I mean, we've just had the first, kind of trickles of the the dam breaking that's in our our future it, it hasn't been enough yet to shift mm-hmm. people away from it but but we might be getting there right we might we might eventually be able to uh do something about it and one of the things that will hasten that moment is um it, uh restoring uh competition to those industries that one of the reasons that 
the industry that spies on us is able to foster denial and indifference is because it is a monopolized industry. Two companies control 80% of the, the ad market, Google and Facebook. Mm-hmm. And yeah. as, as monopolists, they're able to extract huge monopoly rents. They're among the most profitable companies in the history of the world. And some of those monopoly rents, rather than being returned to shareholders, can be mobilized to distort policy, to, to make us think that there's nothing wrong with the way that they collect data and use it, to forestall regulation, to pay Nick Clegg $4 million a year to go around Europe and the world and say, as the former deputy prime minister of the United Kingdom, I'm here to tell you that Facebook is the friend of the democratic regimes of the world. <laughs> and, and, you know, if... If the anti-monopoly movement, which is a thing I've become very involved with, is able to go from strength to strength, it's surging now, then one of the things that we might do is is destroy the ammunition that's being used by these large monopolistic firms to distort our policy and harm us in these ways with impunity. And and then maybe we can actually take the the nascent and, and natural alarm that people do feel about the invasions of their privacy and and actually turn that into privacy policy that is meaningful in respect to these big companies that actually reins them in. Yeah, and I, I think I like that you frame it as a privacy catastrophe because I think, I mean, what I just exhibited earlier in this episode is this this tendency that I certainly see in myself and I see in other people to get kind of beaten down by the continued um, excesses of this industry and the continued kind of failure of anything to be done to curb it. And I think you're right. It has to be viewed as um, as a calamity. And, I, and nothing, I think, makes that clearer than some of – watching some of the stuff Facebook in particular has put out about their plans for the metaverse and kind of thinking back from all of these sensors they want to store in your house, all of the ways in which they want to map everything around you. Um, they never, you know, they, they they kind of advertise this like, you'll be able to play basketball with somebody who's in a different state. But really what it is, is you're giving Facebook access to every measurement of your body and, you know, the the pulse of the beat of your heart and all this this stuff that like, maybe we don't quite know what it would be useful for from a financialization standpoint, but they'll it's unsettling to think that they'll have to find a way because they'll have it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know like what is to be done about that other than, as you say, kind of breaking up these monopolies. Well, and, and I mean, breaking up is like one of the things we can Mm -hmm. do to monopolies and, and it Mm -hmm. takes a long time, you know, um, AT&T, the first enforcement action against it, uh, happened 69 years before it was broken up in 1982. Yeah. I don't think we can wait that long. But there's a lot of intermediate steps, right? Like we yeah. can force them to do interoperability. We can block them from from uh, predatory acquisitions. We can force them to divest of, of companies and engage in structural separation. We can do all kinds of things. It actually looks like the United Kingdom is going to stop them from buying Giphy, which might seem trivial. After all, it's just like animated GIFs, but... Um, what it actually is is surveillance beacons mm-hmm. in every social media application, right? Because if you're hosting a, a GIF from Giphy in your message to someone else, Facebook has telemetry about that message. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the uh, the the not the ICO, the competition Competition and Markets Authority in the UK was like. Yeah, this is just going to strengthen your market power. That's why you're buying this company. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have too much market power already. We're not going to let you do it. Um, it was almost the case that the Fitbit merger was blocked. Google's Fitbit merger. I think uh, it's still not too late to roll it back. And 
Lena Khan, who's the new fire-breathing dragon in charge of the FTC, who is an astonishing person, who was a law student three years ago. Uh, she has said, oh yeah, this this like $1.3 trillion worth of mergers and acquisitions that you're doing right now to get in under the wire before we start enforcing, guess what? We're going to unwind those fucking mergers if it looks like they were anti-competitive. And not only are you going to lose all the money you spent on the M&A due diligence and the paperwork and the corporate stuff, but all that integration you're going to do between now and then, you're going to have to de-integrate those companies when we tell you that yeah, you don't have uh, uh, you don't have merger approval and you're on notice. You can't come and complain later, right? Like you can either get in line and wait for us to tell you whether or not your merger is legal, or you can roll the dice. But I tell you what, if you come up snake eyes, you are fucked. And that is amazing, right? That is a powerful change in American industrial policy that really makes a difference. Yeah. I mean, and that is a beautiful thing to think of being in place and actually hitting as hard as it could. Obviously, the concern is that, like, who will be, you know, picking the head of the FTC in three years and change? And, like, how 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 much influence yeah. is Peter Thiel going to have there and the like? Um, yeah, and I, well, I, and Peter Thiel, of course, loves monopolies. He says competition yeah. is for losers. So you're yeah. right. I mean, obviously, elections have consequences. Uh, but, you know, one of the ways that you win elections is by making material differences in people's lives. And so, you know, if people are policy, then uh, one of the most important policies Biden has set so far is hiring Lena Khan and and her colleagues Cantor at the DOJ and Tim Wu in the White House. Yeah, I mean, I I, I would I, I would love nothing more than to see particularly like Facebook reined in at this point because I'm one of the casualties of the uh, of the of the the ad market like crash of uh, started in like 2016 17. It feels like the odds of them being able to like, I don't know, we, we've got three years where we know, you know, theoretically, the these policies will be in place. And and I don't know, I'm hopeful like when I when I because the Republicans are talking a lot about regulating social media too, about even breaking up these companies, but they they often tend to be talking about it in a very different way and with a very different kind of end goal in mind. Um and I guess, you know, obviously they know that, right? Facebook, they they are well aware that, like, this might be a wait-out-the-clock situation for them, and they have some arrows uh, in I, that quiver. I mean, that may be so, but also remember that 80% yeah. of Facebook's users are outside of the U.S. Yeah. And that even a change in administration here won't won't um, put Margaret Vestager, who's the, the competition commissioner in the EU, back in the bottle. And she's another fire breather. Great. Right? She's another yeah. amazing person. And so, you know... I, I wouldn't be too quick to write that off. I mean, Facebook uh, needs its foreign markets. Yes, its U.S. Yeah. customers are worth more to anyone else because we have the most primitive privacy frameworks, so it can extract a lot more data. From, like, we're the, we're the richest people with the worst privacy. Yeah. So that's, that's um, you know, it's a real home court advantage for Facebook, but it needs that other 80% of its users. It, it wouldn't be what it is without them. And that makes it subject to their jurisdiction. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things about ad-driven firms like Facebook um, is that they really need sales offices in country. Uh, so, you know, even before we we had the proliferation of national firewalls, which don't get me wrong, I don't think is a good thing. Um, these large global firms that operated um, sales offices in country in every territory they worked in were vulnerable to regulation because if you have staff in a country, then you have someone that can be arrested. Right. And so it's not like they can 
just be like, I don't know, like the tour project, which mm -hmm. just, you know, it has people um, who, who sit and hack on tour who are close to lawyers who can defend people who sit on hack and to on tour. Uh, you know, if the tour project had to have staff full time in Turkey and China and Russia and Syria in order to operate, yeah. it would be a very different project. But, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Google, they all have staff in those countries and it makes them vulnerable to regulation. And so, you know, China's really interesting because because the um, uh, Xi Jinping, for his own reasons, which are not my reasons and distinct from the Democrats and the Republicans reasons is doing stuff to rein in big tech in China. Mm -hmm. And it's actually quite interesting because, you know, the argument that Nick Clegg makes when he says why we shouldn't break up Facebook is he says, uh, you know, China is coming for your, um, for your IP and for your industrial competitiveness, uh, with its big tech giants that it treats as national champions that project soft power around the world. Meanwhile, China is like, these tech giants, we hate these tech giants. They present a countervailing force to the hegemony of the of the Communist Party and the and the executive branch that Xi Jinping sets at the top of. We're gonna neuter them and we're gonna we're gonna disappear their founders like Jack Ma into fucking <laughs> gulags. Right? Like they're like, we don't want national champions because the nation that you know Weibo and Alibaba is the champion for is Weibo and Alibaba. And Tencent, they're not they're not champions for China by any stretch of the imagination. They don't give a shit about China. And so, you know, all of these companies are going to face regulatory pressure, anti-monopoly regulatory pressure all over the world. And you're you're so much more um, optimistic, I guess, about about the potential for that to bite than a lot of people I talk to, and I think more knowledgeable as well. And I, I kind of wonder because there's this very strong obviously influenced by decades of cyberpunk attitude that like we're in this age of mega corporations whose power is, you know, there's nothing that can stop Amazon from doing what Amazon wants to do, right? Facebook's going to keep doing whatever they want to do forever. You you clearly don't believe that. And I, you know, I, you, you clearly know your stuff. I'm wondering wh why you think that that image is still persist, so persistent, that like attitude in our heads of uh, these, these, these are kind of monolithic forces in our society that um, just have to be endured. So I think it's a belief in the great forces of history, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the great man theory, you know, that the, the these, um, uh, you know, that these rich people are driving history. Uh, yeah. These, these, these powerful figures are driving history. They're in charge. They're in the driver's seat. I mean, that's kind of what's behind Trump derangement syndrome, right? The idea that Trump is a uniquely powerful and, and talented demagogue as yeah. opposed to just like a demagogue shaped uh, puzzle piece that fit in the demagogue shaped hole mm -hmm. that was left by the collapse of credibility of capitalism. Uh, and, you know, a man who is clearly too stupid yeah. to be a cause of anything and will only ever be the effect of something. And, uh, you know the the for me the theory of of history and how it goes was really uh, transformed by an exercise that my friend Ada Palmer does. So Ada is a science fiction novelist. She's she's just published the fourth book of her Terra Ignota series, her debut series. It's an incredible series of books. But she's a real like kind of multi talented, multi threat. So she's a librettist and singer who's produced album length operas based on the Norse mythos. She's also a tenured history of um, a tenured professor of Renaissance history in Florence at the University of Chicago. 
where she studies heterodox information, pornography, homosexuality, witchcraft, and so on during the Inquisitions. And every year with her undergrads, she reenacts through a four-week-long live-action role-playing game the election of the Medici's Pope. (laughs) And each of her students takes on the role of a cardinal from a great family in the the actual election of the, I I forget what year it was, uh, 1490 or something. Maybe fifteen ten, I forget, but uh, they each take on the, uh, the the this role, and they have a character sheet and it has motivations. It's like a dinner party murder mystery, but for four weeks, they make alliances, break alliances, stab each other in the back, uh, stage surprise reversals, and at the end of the four weeks, there's this uh, faux gothic cathedral on campus, and they dress up in costume. Ada has a. Uh, uh, a Google alert for theater companies that are getting rid of their costumes. So she clothes them in the garb of, of the Medici's Cardinals and they gather and they go into a room and then a puff of smoke emerges and you get the new Pope. And every year, four of the final candidates, uh, there are four final candidates rather, and two of them are always the same because the great forces of history bear down on that moment to say those people will absolutely be in the running for the for the papacy and two of them have never once been the same because human action still has space to alter uh the outcomes that are prefigured by the great forces of history and so for me the idea of being an optimist or a pessimist has always felt very fatalistic it it's this either way this idea that the great forces of history have determined the outcome and human action has no bearing on it and i think that uh, rather than optimism or pessimism, we can be hopeful. And that's the word you used before. Hope is the idea not that you can see a path from here to the place you want to get to, but rather that you haven't run out of things that you can do to advance your your goal, right? Because if you can take a step to advance your goal, if you can ascend the gradient towards the peak that you are trying to reach, then you will attain a new vantage point and from that vantage point, you may have revealed to you courses of action that you didn't suspect before you took that step. So, so long as a step is available, there's always another step lurking in the wings that you can't see from where you are. And the reason I'm hopeful about this is I can think of like 50 things that could improve the uh, monopoly picture that we're living in now. And it's up from 30 things last year. And so even though I don't know how we get from here to a better future, and even though I absolutely see the blockers you're talking about, mm-hmm. a Trump landslide, uh, lo- losing Congress because they let Joe Manchin and, and Kristen Cinema <laughs> neuter yeah. the, the, the Build Back Better bill, um, you know, all of those things that can happen, I have hope, you know, which is not the same as optimism or a belief that things will be great or even, even like a sense, uh, a lack of a sense of foreboding. I have mm-hmm. that in spades. But uh, I have hope that when the next phase of the fight begins, that we will have many um, vulnerable spots we can strike at and that we can capitalize on whichever victories we attain to find more vulnerabilities and move on. I think that's so important. And I think it goes in line with, to bring up climate change again, the idea that like one of the most toxic things you can think are climate change is that there's nothing to do. We're already past every point of no return and there's no... There's no positive action because it just leads you to doing the same thing as the people who deny it. Um, and it, it's uh, – yeah, I think it's it's very important to um, 
recognize that like not only are there things you can do, but when you do those things, you start taking those steps, other steps reveal themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was, and you know what, if you're feeling nihilistic about, uh, about climate, um, I'm nearly through Saul Griffith's book, Electrify. Uh, Saul's a, an old friend of mine. He's a MacArthur winner. He's an electrical engineer. And he's just done the, he's, it's a popular engineering book. It's one of my favorite genres. They're like popular science books, except instead of telling you about how science works, they tell you about how engineering works. And he's basically like, here is why all the estimates of how much renewables we need are hugely overestimated. And it's basically that like keeping uh, fossil fuel power online requires a lot of fossil fuel. Mm-hmm. Right. So something like 40% of that estimate is just, it's the energy that we need to make the energy. And it's not present in electrical models. Here's how we can manufacture it. Here's how we can distribute it. Here is basically how, if we can figure out the financing, uh, Americans can uh, spend less money every year than they do now to get more stuff that they love every year, that we can do this without hair shirts. It's a spectacular book. Um, and you know, I, I don't agree with everything Saul says every, all the time, but he is very careful about his, uh, technical facts. There aren't technical errors in this. There might be assumptions that we disagree with, but as a technical matter, he's basically written a piece of design fiction in which over the next 15 years using clever finance and, and solid engineering, we really actually do avert the climate emergency. And yeah, as always, kind of the main barriers to doing the best version of the thing is the the political realities on the ground. You know, you have to, but I think that's the that's the value of at least trying to make it clear that there are options. I wanted to shift for a moment. Um, I was thinking recently about I think probably the earliest back book of yours that I've read, Pirate Cinema which is heavily involved. I think I'm going to, you know, if if you're one of the folks like me uh, who was on the internet back when, you know, file sharing sites, when that was a huge topic of discussion, when the RIAA was going after people, when like copyright uh, was kind of a, 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 a much more prevalent part of kind of the online discourse, um, it, it deals a lot in that. And these kind of, I think there's elements of it that kind of prefigured what Disney has done buying up every imaginable fictional property in the world. And that's kind of the, the elements of dystopia that book deals with is, 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 you know, the attempts of these, this, these giant multinational entertainment corporations to shut down the free trading of ideas, remixing and all that stuff. And then kind of thinking about the difference between the focus of that and the focus of books like attack surface, where you're really delving more into you know, I, I, the fictional versions of real life companies like Tiger Swan that do it, uh, 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 what's the word, surveillance on protesters and all around the world and that are kind of using tactics that were pioneered by other contractors in like Iraq and Afghanistan years earlier. I guess kind of the things that I find interesting about that is, as I can remember when I was first on the internet, the, the big social kind of crusades online with the people that that I paid attention to at least was all around copyright. It was about not just, you know, the attempts to sh- stop people from remixing and sharing copyrighted work, but about um attempts to like buy up copyrights and like into these these ever kind of larger uh uh um agglomerations. And and that's kind of hit it seems to have hit like a terminal point with uh, you know, movies like uh 
uh, Ready Player One and kind of a lot of the stuff we're seeing in Marvel, where everything's showing up everywhere. Space Jam um, 2. Space Jam 2. Um, I guess the part of it that feels less dystopian today is attempts to crack down on file sharing, which I don't think went kind of in the worst case scenario. I'm interested actually in your thoughts on that. Because um, I can remember, you know, when the RIA would be threatening people with years in jail and whatnot over sharing stuff on Kazaa, we, we seem to be, I don't know, is it just that it gets less, like, I'm interested in your in your thoughts on that. Is it just that it's less publicized when they crack down on people or has kind of the nature of their response to that really changed? Well, I think that what's happened with uh, the, the kind of um, steady state of the copyright wars has been the introduction of um, brittleness and fragility into our speech platforms like Twitter mm-hmm. uh, and and Facebook and YouTube, where it's very easy to get material removed by mm-hmm. by making copyright claims. Um, and you know we see that with the sleazier side of the reputation management industry, where they use bogus copyright claims to take down uh, criticisms. You, you you know there was a group of uh, leftists who were really celebrating the idea that if you if Nazis were marching in your town, you could stop them from uploading their videos by playing copyrighted music in the background. And I was like, y- you have no idea what a terrible fucking idea that is. And you know, I, within a couple of years, cops in Beverly Hills were doing mm-hmm. it whenever people tried to film the police. They were, they would just turn on some Taylor Swift to try and stop uploading. Um, you know the the thing about the copyright wars is that the real action turned out to be in um, wage theft uh, through monopolization. So, you know, the neutering and destruction of label-independent music distribution platforms like Kazaa or Grokster or Napster and the Supreme Court decision, uh, the Grokster decision that supported that, uh, meant that the only um, way that you could launch a service like that was in cooperation with the big labels and the the you know most successful one is Spotify. Spotify is actually uh, partially owned by the labels, and the labels use that ownership stake to negotiate a, a kind of formalized wage theft, where they uh, allowed for a lower per stream rate, because when they get royalties for a stream, part of that money goes to their musicians, mm-hmm. and that meant that the firm Spotify retained more profits which it returned to it in the form of higher dividends and dividends go just straight to their shareholders. They don't, that there's no claim that musicians can make on this. And because they set the benchmark rate, it meant that everyone, irrespective of whether you were signed to one of the big three labels ended up uh, getting the same uh, per stream rate as, uh, as universals artists. So they were able to structure the whole market. In the meantime, in the industrial side, uh, copyright laws, notably Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is a, a law passed in 1998 yeah. that makes it a felony to remove DRM, to bypass a technical protection measure. Um, that has become the go-to system for blocking repair, interoperability, uh, and to prevent third parties from um, uh, from from creating services or add-ons that ac- accomplish positive ends like improved accessibility, improved security, um, ad blocking and privacy, and so on. They just say, well, you know, we we put a, a one molecule thick layer of DRM around, say, YouTube, and when you make a YouTube downloader for archival purposes or whatever, um, you uh, you just create a, um, a uh, uh, you, you bypass our technical protection measure, and so you're committing a felony, and you can go to prison for five years and, and pay a $500,000 fine. 
And so you have this like relentless monotonic expansion of DRM into like automotive tractors. Mm -hmm. um, Medtronic uses it to block people from fixing ventilators. Um, so, you know, this, this um, assault on the ability to reconfigure a technology that is ever more prevalent in our lives and that increasingly holds our lives in its, in its hands, right? Its choices determine whether we live or die has been really consequential and I know we don't really think of it as a copyright problem. We think of it as right to repair. We think of it as security yeah. auditing or accessibility. But the the rule that is being used to block interoperability is a copyright law. It's what printer companies use to stop you from buying third-party ink. Um, it's what Apple uses to stop you from installing a third-party app store. And, you know, the absence of a third-party app store is why when Apple removed all the working VPNs in China... Chinese users couldn't just switch to another app store that had working VPNs in it. And so, you know, the, this um, end game of the copyright wars is, I think, a lot more dystopian than uh, merely suing college kids. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's actually really screwed us in ways that are, that are um, hard to fathom. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating example of kind of dystopic creep because at least kind of from my more more ignorant position when I was 19, I was like worried that all of these these people remixing music and movies that I liked like were going to get cracked down on or have their stuff pulled. Um and the the kind of thing that I didn't I don't think a lot of people saw coming until it hit, I certainly didn't was what you were just talking about, the fact that kind of the logic of how these these entertainment companies were looking at like an album or you know a movie and and cutting up pieces of that they've they've applied to like a tractor you know and now you can't like repair your John Deere or modify your John Deere so it works better and then you know you you get situations like we just kind of averted with the John Deere strike where there was a very real possibility that we wouldn't be able to get a large chunk of a harvest because there wouldn't be parts and you can't put your own in and that's to think that that the thought process that led us there started with like trying to protect Metallica <laughs> in some ways is kind of well, funny. And this is why the anti-monopoly critique is great mm. because it shows you that there's cause for solidarity between John Deere tractor owners and John Deere tractor uh, man, uh, makers, the, mm -hmm. the workers who work there, because the same force that has allowed John Deere to cram down its workforce for 40 years is the, is the force that allows it to, um, uh, take away the agency and economic liberties of farmers who own John Deere tractors. And it's, it's the, it's the political power that comes with monopoly. And so, you know, if John Deere were a smaller, weaker firm, it would be less able to resist both the claims of its workforce and the claims of its, um, uh, customers. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that makes, that makes sense. And it is like, I like that idea of, of, because it's not just kind of solidarity between John Deere purchasers um, and and the people who work in the factories. It's also there's kind of solidarity between a wide – like anyone concerned with um, copyright, the, it, it's a much broader base of solidarity than just people who are worried about you know what's happening uh, uh, to fiction or like what Disney's doing to like copyrights around Mickey Mouse or whatever. Like it's it, – you can, you can draw in concerns – um, from right to repair to a bunch of other things, which potentially means there's there's a greater body of people available for action if you can make them see kind of um, converging interests there, which is I think is an interesting idea.
Well, I think you're getting at something really important, and this is um, uh, this comes from James Boyle, who's a copyright scholar at Duke University and was really involved in founding Creative Commons and in those early copyright fights. And and Jamie makes an analogy to the coining of the term ecology, mm-hmm. and he says that before the term ecology came along, you know, some of us cared about owls and some of us cared about the ozone layer, but it wasn't really clear that we were on the same side. You know, it's not clear if you're a Martian looking through a telescope, you might be hard pressed to explain why, you know, the destiny of charismatic, charismatic nocturnal birds and the gaseous composition of the upper atmosphere were the same issue, right? And the term ecology let all these people who cared about different things find a single point to rally around. It turned a thousand issues into one movement. And I think that in the, in the course of resisting corporate power, which is to say resisting monopoly, we have the potential to weld together people from very diverse fields, you know, farmers and, and people who make tractors, sure. But, you know, if you grew up uh, watching professional wrestling and now you're aghast that the uh, wrestlers that you loved are begging on GoFundMe for pennies to die with dignity, you know, once someone explains to you the reason that that's happening is that 30 wrestling leagues became one wrestling league that was able to practice worker misclassification, turn those performers into contractors, take away their health insurance and leave them to die, then suddenly you're on the same side of the people who are worried about big tech and big tractor and the people are worried about the fact that there's only one manufacturer of cheerleading uniform uniforms and two manufacturers of athletic shoes and two manufacturers of spirits and two manufacturers of beer, and one manufacturer of eyewear that also owns all the eyewear stores and the eyewear insurer. You know that Duff Beer thing from the early Simpsons mm-hmm. where there's like Duff Beer, Raspberry, yeah, Duff yeah, Beer Light, yeah. Duff Beer Bach, <laughs> it's and it's all coming beer. out of one thing? Yeah. Dolce & Gabbana, Oliver Peoples, Bausch & Lohm, uh, Versace, every eyewear brand you've ever heard of is one company, Coach, all of them. Mm-hmm. And they also own Sunglass Hut and uh, Target Optical and Sears Optical and Lens Crafters and Spec Savers and every other eyewear store you've ever heard of. And they bought all the labs that make the lenses. So more than half the lenses in the world come from them, a, a division called Essilor. And they bought iMed, which is the company that bought all the insurance companies that insure eyewear. And so they're also the company that's insuring your glasses, your your eyes. One company. And Eyewear costs a thousand percent more than it did a decade ago. They stole our fucking eyes, right? So people who care about that have common cause with people who care about wrestlers and people who care about beer and big tech and the fact that there's four shipping companies and they have no competitive pressure. And so they just keep building bigger ships that get stuck in the fucking Suez Canal, right? We're all on the same side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I like the idea that I like I, I like hoping that that kind of inherent solidarity, if you can point it out to people, is potentially an antidote to, or at least a partial antidote to the level of the layer of politicization that's fallen down over everything. Um, that stops people from actually considering matters, but instead considering like I don't know, is this owning the libs, right? Like if you if they if if you can get them to see that like yeah, their favorite wrestler is like dying because he couldn't afford insulin and that like that's tied to the issue of like the reason his dad can't get tractor parts this year or whatever. Um, and that that's tied to other issues that are maybe championed by people he would reflexively dismiss. But like, yeah, I, I, I find that really inspiring. It's still a significant, there's a significant challenge for people who are trying to make those connections for folks who are, who are trying to like inform them of, of that state. I mean, yeah, that's true. And, you know, like 
Steve Bannon will tell you that the reason to do culture war culture mm-hmm. culture war bullshit mm-hmm. is because politics are down downstream from culture. Yeah. And there's probably an element of truth to that. But I also think the reason that people find culture war bullshit so uh, attractive is because they got nothing else. Yeah. I, right? I, I think we, we talk about that a lot within the context of conservative for politics. I grew up very conservative, and I do remember how the tenor of things I was hearing through the Bush years changed from advocation of policies to just all culture war all the time, all all striking the dims all the time. And it was the kind of um, – it, it it and that's not the only place it's happened. You see it on the left too, absolutely. Like it's it's endemic now. It's it's a, a poison in kind of the the discourse. But I think that there's a lot that needs to be. I think there's a lot to be discovered still for like how to break people out of that. I'm kind of bullish when we talk about these issues, like you were bringing up with sort of the monopolization of these industries you wouldn't expect would be monopolized. I'm hopeful about the future that stuff like 3D printing presents for that. We have an organization in Portland that does kind of 3D printing glasses frames and stuff and is is helping people with that sort of stuff. And I've, I'm in conversations with like the um, uh, the Four Thieves Vinegar Collective, uh, I think it's called. Yeah, um, I the, know some, those folks. Yeah, some of the folks doing like trying to do, working on pharmaceutical hacking, making at the moment like lower cost uh, uh, kind of home scratch brood versions of like different AIDS medications. And the, the Holy Grail is doing that with um, insulin effectively. Um, and I, I think it is, and I, I do think one of the things that's exciting about that is because the way in which, the way in which collaboration on 3D printing works and the way in which actually spreading like the ability to do stuff works, I think it synergizes nicely with the ability of people to kind of reach other folks through writing or other forms of content because they can both spread through the same. You can have a video or a story and you can have like kind of embedded guides on how to do that. Um, I, I I don't know that I've, I've read into a lot of your writings on kind of the potential of 3D printing in this space, but I'm interested in, in like to what do you do? Are you looking at that as kind of an, an area of hope or do you see that still as kind of too, too niche and labor focused to really actually take off in the way that it would need to, to crack some of these nuts. This is where I do my, my Woody Allen, uh, mm-hmm. you know, nothing of my work, uh, shtick because yeah. I, I had this novel Naker, makers in 2009. I haven't read makers in yet. 2008. Yeah. It's, it's why, uh, uh, Brie Pettis went out and founded MakerBot, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, you know, credited with like kickstarting the mm-hmm. homebrew 3d printed revolution, blah, 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 blah. And, um, and it was a very bullish novel about 3d printing. I, um, you know, the reality hasn't lived up to the hype yet. It may just be that we're in the long trough of despair as the, the Gartner hype cycle model has it. Uh, but you know, I think the the problem with, um, 3d printing was that, uh, the patents had been concentrated into the hands of two large firms, mm-hmm. uh, that had bought all their competitors, including MakerBot. And um, when those patents finally expired, the big one was the the laser centering of, of powder patent expired. There just wasn't a big bang. And I think it's because the supply chain for it still had a lot of proprietary elements. And so producing the the powder and producing the, the components that allowed for that uh, powder printing remained a very high bar. And so we just didn't see the kind of new industry emerge that we would have hoped for and, you know, it's like seven years since those patents expired or five years since those patents expired. Now we're seeing a few more of those powder printers. You get a lot more like UV cured epoxy printers because the, those came off patent earlier and they have a less complicated supply chain. 
Um, but still, I mean, mostly when we talk about printers, we're talking about filament and mm-hmm. just filaments, just not a great technology. It's been pushed in ways that you wouldn't even believe. And people have figured out how to do absolutely incredible things with it, but it, it's not, it's not something that you would make aerospace components for, you know, no. it's, it's, it's something that you make, um, uh, novelty dungeons and dragons dice out of. Yeah. Which is an important industry to disrupt. Don't get me wrong, I, but I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> I can remember paying thirty bucks for a set of dice as a kid and thinking somebody's got to <laughs> fix this scam. I, um, I can I can print you some for Christmas, Robert. Thank you, Garrison. And you know now I I own a uh, I bought a Comic Con a couple of years ago. I bought a tiny little D twenty made mm. out of meteoric ore. Oh, so I have a sky metal D twenty. Oh, now that's yeah, that's that's classy. Um. I'm curious, we've got a little bit of time left, and I wanted to ask, in your, your novel Attack Surface, uh, I know it was released 2020, right? October, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and obviously, a lot of that deals with, again, these kind of like mi- corporations that have been contractors for the DOD doing like fucked up surveillance shit in Iraq and Afghanistan, bringing that technology to crack down on like U.S. Uh, sort of dissident left-wing political movements. It comes out the year that we have a nationwide kind of uprising um, that a lot of fucked up surveillance shit that had been kind of demoed stateside around it, like Standing Rock and whatnot, gets gets really put into its own. How much of that was written before shit went down? And, I, and I, I'm assuming like, I, I don't know exactly how your process works, but I'm wondering like, I assume you started the project before everything went the way it did last summer. How much did kind of what happened last summer affect the way you imagined that technology and those tactics functioning in that book? Yeah, the the timeline goes the other direction. I, I wrote that book uh, before the the summer uprising, mm-hmm. um, long, 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 long before that. And I wrote it about things like um, the surveillance technology we saw in Belarus and Kiev. Sure. And also at Occupy and Standing Rock uh, and at other Black Lives Matter demonstrations and uprisings in America. Ferguson, I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. And if you, you know, also the monotonic expansion of surveillance leaks, right? Where, you know, first we learned about MC catchers and then we learned about dirt boxes, which are MC catchers on airplanes. And, you know, like we just, all of that stuff leaked like crazy because, you know, these surveillance giants are are not good at what they do, mm-hmm. right? Which isn't a reason we should be hopeful. No. You know, a company that's bad at what it's, it does is is in some ways even worse because one of the ways that their incompetence expresses itself is that they often gather a bunch of data on innocent people and then leak it. Yeah. Right? Not, not maliciously, just through incompetence. Um, and so, you know, the the... This expansion of surveillance has like been on my mind for a long time. Yeah, you know, I've been writing about it. Well, at least since Little Brother, right? So 2006, I wrote that novel, yeah. and and I've had my finger right? in that. Yeah, so I've had my finger in that for all that time, and and working with EFF, it was impossible to miss. Sure. It, w- was there a degree to which? Um... I don't know. I guess were you surprised by anything that happened last summer, or did it just kind of comprehensively feel like? These are everything slotting into place that I knew was heading in this direction. Because, yeah, I mean, you're right. I did, I like, there was, like, uh, uh, everything was kind of presaged um, years before. I'm Yeah, I, I, I'm i wondering if was, if there was anything that kind of surprised you. Um, or was it was it all just sort of what you'd been braced for? 
Yeah, I I don't feel like there were any kind of surveillance surprises. I mean, the reverse the 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 use of reverse warrants, I think mm-hmm. we all kind of uh assumed was going on. There had been hints of it in Google's warrant canaries beforehand. But uh, you know, those geofence warrants, which again, if you're like sitting there going, Oh, geofence warrants are awesome because they're catching the uh one six rioters, like yeah. dude, you are gonna be so disappointed. Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, that's uh, not where they're gonna keep using those. <laughs> yeah. Um so, you know, learning more about those reverse warrants, I think, was was interesting. Um, but I don't feel like I, I don't. Well, off the top of my head, I can't say that there was any new technical stuff that emerged. You know, I, I um, kickstarted the audiobook for Attack Surface uh, and I, I offered as like the top tier. You could commission short stories in the Little Brother universe. Mm-hmm. And there were three of those. And I just finished the first of them. And it's about um, future pipeline protests. And uh you know, I, I spent a lot of time w- in my research looking at the surveillance that was done on the pipeline protests, and a lot of it was provocateurs and undercovers who were just terrible at their jobs. Yeah. Right? Like, they intercepts long publication of, of uh, you know, long documents about how those o- operators worked. They just, like, showed up in military haircuts and combat boots, and then were like, hey, I'm from Portland, and I'm here because we're going to fuck up some bad guys. Let's mm-hmm. go do it. Let's go do violence and save Indian country. And, like, everyone was like, you, and, like, does anyone want to buy drugs? And and the actual protesters were like, you're a provocateur. Like, go away. You know, like, we, they could tell. I mean, I guess, you know, they were a lot more effective in the UK in, in infiltrating the climate movement. You know, they mm. impregnated several protesters. So, you know and had long-term relationships with them and raised kids with them. So yeah. there is that, yeah, but here, stories. Mm-hmm. yeah, here <laughs> yeah. it was not, they, we did just didn't see that incredible efficacy. Yeah. And I, I do think that that's, I, I think kind of the message I took out of it. Cause I, I was, I, I started reporting on like dirt boxes back during standing rock, just having them like it, it explained to me by people who were on the ground when I showed up that like, yeah, there's this, your like phones don't work the same out here. And like, we're trying to figure out what's going on, but like everything is, is, and it's not just that we're out in the sticks or anything. And I think the only surprise, the big surprise for me last year was how, I think how little the technology accomplished for them and how much it, it just, it just wound up back down to violence. It, it, like that was kind of the, for all of the, the toys they had, the toys that actually made the most difference was gassing and beating people. And, you and know? violence and like old fashioned informants. That was mm-hmm. that was the stuff. Yeah, they, and just having they, a dude there. Yeah, they they, yeah. they really, really relied on, and, and the fact that you that that you Corey weren't super surprised by anything last year, I think, kind of just more shows kind of the strength of your work in terms of how you're very yeah. good at seeing the trends that are already happening, but taking them to their next logical place, um, and it's a really great way to kind of get a sense of what is something, what is what will something maybe look like in the next decade or so because it's, it's all based on already existing stuff just in different kind of original ways so that's why i think it's it's so useful to look at your books as as an activist specifically around like surveillance and stuff because it's it's just a really it's it's really good for kind of keeping keeping an eye on keeping what, ahead ke- yeah, yeah and, and keeping an eye on what's keeping an eye on you um mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff this was a really lovely conversation. It was a lovely last thing to do in my home office in 2021 because I leave tomorrow and won't be back until the next year. And then mm-hmm. I'm actually going to be offline for a month after a joint replacement. So 
It was uh, it was really lovely to meet you all and yep. to chat with you. Thank, Thank you, you so for much this. for chatting with us today, Corey. My yeah. pleasure. Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. The following is a high five moment from highfivecasino.com. I won! Yahoo! Private, put down your phone. This is the army. Sarge, High Five Casino is a social casino. It's on your phone. goes wherever you go. I win free spins, cash, prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games. I won again. Platoon, present cell phone. High Five. High Five. Casino. Casino. Win at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High Five Casino. You know what I think? It's time to do a podcast. All right, I did it, Sophie. Congrats. (laughs) This is It Could Happen Here, a podcast that's begun. We talk about how things are falling apart and occasionally when we're feeling good, how how to maybe put them back together a little bit. But today, we're more talking about the growing consensus that uh, things in the U.S. culture wars are heating up to a, an unacceptable level, and and maybe people are going to start doing some non-culture type wars here in the near future, like a civil type war here in the near future. Those of you who know me, uh, which why would you be listening to this podcast if you if you don't know like the earlier seasons of this exact show? 
uh, know that I talk a lot about the potential of a mass civil conflict in the United States. I've been kind of trying to warn about it for a while. And today we're going to do an episode about some of the more mainstream sources uh, that have started to kind of accept this as a possibility um, and get concerned about it. Garrison, you've presented us with three articles, uh, one from NBC News, Mm -hmm. one from uh, The Independent, and one from the Brookings Institute, uh, all kind of fiddling around this idea that certain unnamed journalists have spent years uh, discussing. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna get into it, Garrison. Yeah. So it is the the past the past few months we have. Well, I've I've been watching to see how how this uh, idea has been slowly kind of gaining in popularity. Of course, there was like a spike in this around like January sixth. But yep. then stuff kind of settled down, and now we're kind of seeing it come back up again. So we had these these three pieces all published within like a month of each other, um, all kind of on this topic. And specifically, like the pieces themselves are definitely going coming at this from a more like liberal uh, perspective. <laughs> but the thing that made them interesting is that they they did have a decent number of like uh, of uh, of polls, yeah, and uh, and and surveys in them based on like what who who what types of people think. Are like are thinking about this and think it's more more of a possibility. One survey published for, uh, on November first, twenty twenty one, they said eighteen uh, percent of Americans uh, believe that uh, quote unquote patriots m- might have to resort to violence to quote save the country. Um, mm-hmm. So and, and that included thirty uh, percent of Republicans. Um, so, but eighteen percent of all of, of 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 Americans in general, thirty percent of Republicans. Yeah. So using that very specific like turn of phrase. Is definitely uh, notable, and then a, a, another poll from earlier in the year found that forty-six uh, percent of people thought the country was somewhat or very likely to have another uh, type of civil war. And, and that's th- the plurality of the people polled in that, because only like forty-three percent said unlikely. So the majority of people, or not the majority of people polled, but like the most. The plurality of them was, leaned on yes, it is. Yeah, more likely I think than maybe not. we're going to have us a war. Yeah. yeah, which is not great. The one that uh, uh, NBC published, included in their article, had about like thirty-three percent of people saying no, it's it's probably not going to happen. Twenty percent kind of on the maybe, and 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 forty-seven <sighs> leaning on yeah, this may this is this is probably going to happen at some point soon. Yep. And I mean, a, a lot of a lot a lot of what these articles are talking about is just like kind of the increased. Increased threats against like elected officials, and then increased almost like militancy or performative militancy of elected officials. Yeah, types of like like you know like a uh, performatively bringing your gun into Congress and that type of thing. And it lays out like a list of a list of like of of, of threats or stuff enacted against governors, congressmen, all that kind of stuff in in the past, in the past like a uh, year year mainly. Yeah, one of the things I really disagree about the the Brookings because Brookings is the one who kind of is analyzing that ma- that big poll and talking about it has a list of reasons why we might have a civil war and a list of reasons why it's unlikely. And one of the reasons why it's unlikely is quote most of the organizations talking about civil war are private, not public entities. Um, and note that when Southern states seceded in 1860, they had police forces, military organizations, and state sponsored militias. The the right that's very, has that's very most wrong. of that now. Yeah, uh, yeah, like, yeah, like, like <laughs> I, I really disagree very, with it. There's yeah, a ton no. of s- signal posting from guys like Jim Jordan, uh, Madison Cawthorn, um, Gates, Bobert, um, 
a ton of signal posting of uh, Gosar um, from elected Republican leaders, from governors, from state level elected officials. Um, and like that regular are, street cops. Yeah, and like regular street cops that are like civil war adjacent, um, if not yeah. directly advocating for internet scene violence. So I, yeah. I think that that, I don't <clears throat> think Brookings, uh, I don't think their analysis is spot on with this. Agreed. And I think there's just one other thing that's interesting about that, which is, I think it was, one of those these articles were arguing that it was like, well, the Pentagon's not particularly civil war, like, well, the Pentagon doesn't want a civil war, they're not going to step in and do it. But but I think sure. it is also important to note that, like, like, if you remember what happened last summer, there's a lot of feds who are just like, you know, like when, like, yeah, so, so you know, the, 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 the army kind of doesn't want Trump to, like, send the army against protesters but like you know like bortak for example like 100 percent was just like absolutely hyped up to just like absolutely just go disappear a bunch of people and they, like they were very excited about that possibility. yeah yeah they, they love they love this stuff and it's like i don't know no, yeah the, the notion that it's less likely because it doesn't have like formal police backing is really silly because if you spend any time monitoring these type of militia groups you know that a good portion of them are also members of some type of law enforcement or have like family connections to are members of law enforcement Guard, there have been a bunch of cases of weapons being stolen stolen from forts um particularly in like the west coast right now like yeah there's a ton of connections to the and a ton of like members in common it's like at the capitol riot there were like 30 something active duty police officers involved um to say that there's not direct connections with law enforcement is is nonsense. And it's true that, like, our military leadership remains pretty much apolitical and very, like, committed to being apolitical in the sense that, like, in the in, within the, like, U.S. partisan context, right? Like, they, they don't come in to, to prop up the Democrats or the Republicans, and I don't think that's immediately likely. But police forces in the United States are extremely politicized and have more than enough power to carry out uh, a counterinsurgency campaign nationwide. And as long as the U.S. military didn't step in, and why would they? Like, the cops are willing and able to do the civil warring for the government. Why do you think they have all those tanks, you know? So, yeah, like, there is there is a lot of backing, um, at least performatively, among certain types of, like, right-wing politicians and, of course, police. But I think a lot of what the politicians are trying to do is more, like, encourage regular folks or people in, like, civilian militias to just start doing violence against other elected leaders. That is, seems to be kind of like, like, like Bobbert and that, and those types aren't, aren't they're, they're not like telling police to go do this. They're speaking to like regular people. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, one, one, one decent point the actually, the NBC piece actually puts out, it says all of this kind of like divisive um, and, and more violent, uh, rhetoric and behavior displayed by and towards some of our elected officials does not necessarily mean another like civil war in terms of like a military con like, uh, contest between states um it just does not mean that it's inevitable or even prob or even like probable a more likely scenario is a turbulent era of civil uh, disturbances armed conf confrontations standoffs threats assassination attempts and other acts of political violence in other words uh, one that's a lot like the last 200 years of American history, which I feel like, yeah, in terms of in terms of the likelihood of there being like a more formally declared kind of conflict versus just With tanks and shit, yeah, versus no, just like but... increasingly increasingly normalizing extreme violence against uh, you know 
quote unquote fellow countrymen, I think is is a uh, yeah, like there's we are going to be more likely to be just moving in that direction slowly. And at the point when there's like frequent enough exchanges of fire, that's when we say, yeah, we're basically in a civil war. We're just not calling it that. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, that's the points that you, Robert, have, have made a lot in the uh, in, 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 in the past. Yeah, I mean, and there's I I'm I I think a lot of this is just a failure of kind of imagination, an ability to accept from a group like Brookings, who I know has paid some attention to the Syrian civil war, that like civil conflicts in the United States or in the in the 21st century often don't like there's no clear regional split. Like you look at a lot of what was happening in Syria, you had cities divided up by neighborhoods between like who who was in charge. Um you know that that's very much what we see here and you do see like clear regional split between urban and rural divides and it's not like they say within specific states but like i would say it's very specific in limited states that don't have huge urban rural divides yeah um like that's that is the norm everywhere in this country that i've been um maybe it's different in fucking vermont or new hampshire but i don't trust those places um yeah and i i guess I, I think they're overly optimistic um, based on kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of how these sorts of conflicts occur. Um, that said, I don't know. Like, it's it's one of those things. I think the number one, the number one thing you should be looking at in terms of whether or not a civil war is likely is the number of people who respond in polls with things like, yes, I, I think we need to use violence to restore the nation or whatever. Um, that it's not just enough. Like I, I, it's not just enough to think that a civil war is likely because a lot of that's just based on people who don't want one, but are paying attention to the same media as everybody else and have are watching the same stuff we're watching and are like, well, this seems sketchy. I think the, the main indicator is the number of people who respond. Yeah. I, I think it would be awesome to use violence as a, like in order to make America more like what I want it to be. Um, and again, that doesn't mean we'll, we'll creep over the point. There's a number of interesting things that have happened, um, on kind of the, we're headed towards the civil war side. The, the number one thing that I've seen recently is the use of paramilitary organizations, um, to kind of choke, uh, local civil institutions, um, like school boards. Uh, I, I see that as very concerning and as kind of prelude, to the sort of armed mobilizations that you would see at unlocalized areas in any kind of civil conflict, it's it's the the precursors to death squads. So that's the that's the thing that I see on the ground that worries me most. Um, in terms of the thing that uh, I'm I'm less certain about, honestly, like one of the things they they note in here in the Brookings article that like the sheer number of guns in the United States is a reason why we might have a civil war, and I I, I agree with that entirely. When you have 400 million weapons in private hands, it increases the odds that they'll be used in some sort of scale. Um, we've also seen historic numbers of, of non-white people, of, of, of like folks who are from marginalized communities, um, not just buying up weapons at unprecedented rates, but organizing with them. And I'm not really sure how to think of that. There's certainly a way, it, it could certainly be a very negative development, but it could also be I think a big part of what I've seen from the right lately is the sense of impunity. Um, and I think the feeling of being matched uh, in, in arms 
is an end to impunity potentially. Um, then the big question is like, well, what about the police? And like, well, if the police side with the riot against, you know, there's there's still a number of questions there, and we don't have any clean answers. But um, I don't know that I, I I think that on the whole, I'm more worried than I was two years ago when I wrote it could happen here. Um, but it's not clean, and I think in some to some extent, I'm I'm a little more worried about something like the years of lead in Italy than I am about. Syria right now, if that makes sense. I, I will say one thing about the years of lead, which a lot of people talk about the years of lead. So the, the years of lead are this it, kind of like a roughly 10-year period in Italy of I don't know, mass terrorism maybe. Escalating right political violence with like yeah, significant and, body counts in a way that stood out from the years around it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the, the years of lead has I mean, the years of lead. Also, there's there's a bunch of intelligence agencies involved. And a like, lot of foreign countries. Yeah, involved. false flag. Yeah, yeah, false flag bombings. Like hundreds, hundreds of people are being killed in bombings. And and I think there there's one absolutely crucial difference between now and the years of lead. I mean, well, okay. So partially, it's that unlike Italy, we don't have seventeen thousand intelligence agencies operating in the U.S. and like trying to kidnap and kill the foreign prime minister. But the the other thing that's very important is that. Unlike unlike the Italian left, and you know, really unlike the the whole global left of, of the seventies and eighties, there is no American like left wing, like left wing. I guess you could call it, like there's no, there's no left wing terrorist tradition, right? Like the like the left doesn't do suicide bombings. The left doesn't kidnap people. The like like the, 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 the modern American left just doesn't do that. And that a, a big part of of what was happening during the years of lead was that. You know, sometimes the left was doing this. A lot of times it was the state pretending to be the left carrying out bombings. And that isn't really something that is happening right now because there's just like the like the 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 left is not in a place where everyone is going, we need to do armed urban guerrilla movements. And yeah, so that that makes it harder to sort of pin things like pin actual urban guerrilla movement stuff on the left because there's just none of yeah, that. Yeah, but I, I don't that, think yeah. it, I, I agree. Years of left is kind of like a broad strokes comparison because what I see is more likely is what we're what we're already witnessing on the ground with these right-wing militant groups increases and they move to the point of kidnapping and executing and potentially mm -hmm. in concert with law enforcement like doing stuff like in states that have issued harsh laws, you know, banning certain books you have in a town, lo local law enforcement and militias like go after and grab individual leftists and either kill or imprison them and conflicts over that. And you have the left increasingly organize and arm um, as a defense against that. And then a number of armed conflicts, you know, uh, as a result of that, which maybe then proceed to bombings and stuff that that's terrorism or proceed to just more kind of skirmishes that the feds have a minimal response to and local or state law enforcement kind of tacitly allows. Um, like that, that's, that's kind of, obviously that's not a direct comparison to what happened in Italy, but of course we're a different country, but that's kind yeah. of, that's kind of the, the kind of brush fire conflict I could see cropping up in the very near future in this country. You know what else? We'll start a series of armed gunfights between left and right in American towns. The products, products and services. And services yeah. Sponsor the podcast. They're, they, they're, they're working on it every day. The products and services that support this podcast urge 
violence on the streets of the United States. That's the Behind the Bastards guarantee, Sophie. We're not doing Behind the Bastards. What what show are we? Who are we? <laughs> anyway, here's ads. All right. Oh, my gosh. Great ad uh, We're back. Yeah, what a great ad. I really nailed that transition. Um, just absolutely bang. So it. the next thing that I want to talk about, um, something that I think ha- has some some backing behind it and something that I think is kind of more silly is that one of one of the reasons that this uh, NBC piece by what's his name uh, uh, Brian Brian Michael Jenkins uh, made Christ. is uh, <laughs> he says one of one of the reasons that we're kind of more, getting more okay with you mm-hmm. know uh, killing or hurting uh, our neighbors essentially is um, Quote, Americans do fewer things together. Church attendance is declining. Membership in civic organizations and lodges has been decreasing for decades. PTA membership has dropped by nearly half from what it was in 1960s. Bowling leagues have almost disappeared. And a shared national experience of military service uh, disintegrated with the abolition of conscription in 1973. Meanwhile, (laughs) self-proclaimed citizen militias, driven mainly by far-right conspiracy theories, have surged since 2008, especially in the past five years. So, he is wrong, but he's, yes, militias have... Bowling leagues. Militias have risen, but is that due to bowling leagues? Yeah, I don't think it's due to a drop in bowling leagues. I think it's due to the fact that all these guys are terminally online now, and we're watching Fox News for 20 years before that. That that is the thing, is that, like, I don't think this guy, Brian Michael Chickens, understands how the internet intersects with extremism. Because he's he's doing this from a very, like, like, he's, he's acting like we're still in the 70s. And he like like that's not how the world works and how like people spend their time. No, people aren't doing bowling leagues, but yeah, a whole bunch of young men are spending and and you know middle aged men are spending time online, whether that be Discord in a terrorist group chat or that be a Facebook group that's for a militia, and that's where that socialization is happening. And because the internet rewards extremism and the hottest take, it's moving in that direction, even with people who would ordinarily just have historically in the past joined bowling leagues, I guess. But I don't yeah, know. It's, it's, it, very... it's, it's correlation doesn't equal causation shit. It's, wow, less people are in bowling leagues and going to church, and militias have grown wild, wildly. Um, this, it, one must cause the other. And it's like, well, no, they're both – both of those things may have some causes in common. There may be similar factors that are driving both of those things, uh, but they are not – caused like they, they don't necessarily one doesn't necessarily cause the other well, it, um and it, if you like again the smart person version of this would be to say hey people are doing less things together out in the world people are reporting because you can find statistic backup for this people seem to be lonelier than ever um people are more depressed than ever suicide rates have risen and while this is happening militias and extremist groups have grown perhaps there's something about these organizations um that makes them particularly attractive when folks are vulnerable due to these things and like let's look at you know uh, the failure of our political system to confront these issues further feeds into the desire among some chunk of the populace for some sort of nihilistic cleansing violence and again pieces of uh, all the pieces of this article could be could be reassembled into something with um some insight but i i don't think brian michael jenkins has much 
I think there's also an interesting thing to note here about because the, so the, the the last thing he talks about this oh this is the thing that formed the common sort of national identity was a shared universal military service and it's like okay the 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 reason shared universal military service went away was that everyone kept murdering literally just blowing their officers up in Vietnam like that and you know if if you want to talk about inc- like incredibly high levels of political polarization and like mass violence between Americans I mean. The army basically fighting a civil war against itself in Vietnam is, you know, an enormously important part of this. And then simultaneously, the sort of right wing vets returning home and, you know, yeah. going Louis Beam and stuff like that, that, you know, it, he, he, he's relying on this kind of mythos of, <laughs> of this. Oh, there was a time when America, you know, it, it's, it's basically, it's basically made it make America great again, but sort of like, yeah, that, that, that's the thing is that and, this, yeah. this type yeah. of rhetoric is actually very similar to like the return, return to tradition stuff being like the solution to our extremism. So you need to be going to tur- church again, being part of civil uh, organizations, joining bowling leagues and conscri- conscripted military service. That's like, that is that, that is just the same that that is very similar to like the make America great again return to tradition sect because those are those are also their goals, except that they're just willing to use violence to achieve those goals. Whereas this guy just wants people to start doing that again, I guess. Um, I don't know. Yeah, like in terms of like military service not leading to extremism. I mean, like Oklahoma City bombing. I I don't I don't I don't really th- there is other stuff going on there, but like in terms of terms of that being like an example, it is it is very silly because a lot of a lot of uh. A lot of the guys, even inside, you know, our our current like three percenters and stuff, a lot of them have former military service. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so that I mean, but like, yeah, c- c- citizen militias in terms of gaining popularity, but specifically due to um, kind of overall distrust of the federal government and the type of socialization that being uh, online too much uh, results in, is has yes grown 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 the militia movement a lot. Um, and and I just don't see how uh, bowling is going to solve that issue in terms of in terms of uh, how do we I mean, get I people can think to trust the federal government? Could solve that issue, Garrison. But but you've never watched The Big Lebowski, so you wouldn't you wouldn't understand. <laughs> I've not watched The Big Lebowski, so I'm, I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of I'm kind of done with the kind of done with the NBC piece. There, I know there was there was some. Fuck others. you, Brian Michael Jenkins. <laughs> The the other thing on uh on the Brookings thing that I have a decent issue with is that they're one of the reasons they give for and and this is actually something that Brian Michael Jenkins also brings up in the NBC piece is that one of the reasons why he they believe the Civil War is not as inevitable is because there is no clear regional split like a north south divide and they for some reason think this means that there is less likely to be civil conflict. Um, they yeah. rec- they recognize there is an urban rural divide in most states, but because there is no large kind of obvious north south divide, they think this is going to yeah. make a civil war less likely. And well, the map that's... would really be a pain in the ass, so it probably won't happen. Right, like that's that's the thing they're thinking is like, oh, if I was gonna, yeah. if I was have to map this out, it's gonna be too complicated. Yeah. When I I read that, I had flashbacks to my first trip to a war zone in Ukraine where we were like taking Google Maps up to a certain point and then we had to use like hand-drawn notes because he was like, well, the the different like the different chunks of this air next like 20 acres that are owned by the separatists as opposed to the government are like, you can't use Google. It'll send you into enemy territories because it's, 
not a clean break because you had literally suburbs of cities fighting each other. And you still do. Yeah, so, like, this is a this is you know I think partially this 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 is a, a sort of peak American brain thing because you know our there's there's yes. been like five ever civil wars that have broken like this and the problem is that there's the American Civil War and then we also fought in both Vietnam and North Korea but like well yeah yeah well we just those weren't really like, civil wars yeah 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 that's that's the there thing. was like, fighting so, the, between two halves of the country yeah. but it was a proxy for two other several other countries yeah in and that, that's case. that's the yeah. yeah and then that's and that's the thing that like. It's the, the the combination of the American Civil War was a, a very unique civil war, and then the other major things that we think of as like quote unquote civil wars were you know were, were basically Cold War stuff. And I mean you know like there there are a couple other like yeah you know, I mean and, there have been other examples of like secessionist stuff like that. It's like I mean in like in, the, in any the, civil the war, yeah, like, there's a lot of other countries that get involved in the U.S. Civil War. There was a significant amount of of yeah. that sort of fight. yeah, and, and even like, even. Even in even in the U.S. Civil War, like <laughs> there are just like towns in the middle of like Confederate yeah. territory, they're like, no, fuck this, we're not going over. But everyone, but people have this just like incredibly myopic view of what a civil war is, and it's like every other civil war that's been fought in the last like fifty years has been just seven thousand factions, like neighborhood fighting each other. I don't know. It's just incredibly yeah, it's, frustrating to watch these people not understand this. It's very America brained. And it's very sad because I'm, I'm, I'm going to read a quote that's going to make us want to purge our ears. There are urban rural differences within specific states, with progressives dominating the cities while conservatives reside in rural communities. But that is a far different geographic divide than when one region could wage war on another. The lack of a distinctive or uniform geographic division limits the ability to confront other areas, organize supply chains, and mobilize the population. There can be local skirmishes between different forces, but not a situation where one state or region attacks another, which is complete nonsense. And that's not how, like, it's like they don't understand that guerrilla fighting exists, and they don't understand how the whole, the whole, the whole part about uh, organizing supply chains and mobilizing population, like that, is just another way to fight a war. Is by exploiting that specific thing, like the, the fact that cities are so isolated, um, and lack uh, and, and and lack a whole bunch of resources, and the fact that rural areas are isolated in a different way and lack separate resources. That is not something that makes a civil war less likely. That just makes it more complicated. Yeah, and that makes just it yeah. more of a pain will in the be ass. Fighting over Amazon fulfillment centers and the like. Yeah, like it's it's the it is it is ridiculous. Um, saying that, yeah, saying that uh, that that it's it's far different from a geographic divide that one region could wage one another. It's like that. No, you're you're just saying something that is just completely wrong, and like you have not studied any type of like urban conflict whatsoever. Yeah, and and I, and I think there's an important thing to understand here, which is that regions. In, in a civil war, mostly, it's not that regions wage war on each yeah, other. Yeah, it's not re- it's that people regions don't do movements. Regions yeah, don't do the fighting. Fight. Yeah, like regions yeah. aren't the things that are fighting. It's the people in areas. Yeah. People can move around, and people can block off access to areas. And like, yeah, it's a, it's this, it's a weird, it's a, it's super weird way to think about things. And it's the fact that if if this is something that like the Brookings Institution. Um, is if if this is what they think on this topic, that's a pretty sad indicator for what a lot of people how they how like a lot of mainstream liberals are going to view the possibility of any type of civil conflict. And I don't know, maybe they feel very secure in their cities, um, 
which which is a weird thing. I've I've not felt that in years. Yeah, and, and I think the other thing that's very weird about this is that because so, so a lot of the people writing about this are ex are um like are like counterterrorism people, right? And the counterterrorism counterinsurgency people, it's weird because they used to understand this, like you know, like a lot of like you know because like in in you know in in the twentieth century and in even sort of the early twenty first century, like the 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 the, the sort of the sort of standard like guerrilla insurgency doctrine was you know some 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 variation on the like maoists i uh, fish in the sea like surround the cities with their like rural areas etc 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 and like and you you even see versions of this you know in, in things that aren't quite civil wars but are kind of like what happened like the 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 the, the water and gas wars in bolivia in the early 2000s mm-hmm. where like you know what, what? What? Yeah, you you have kind of an urban rural divide, although they have allies in the cities. But the sort of you know like the the you, you you have a bunch of rural indigenous groups that literally just you know they blockade every road in the country and then starve the cities out, right? I mean this 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 is this is just a thing that happened in like 2005, 2006. and that's gonna and happen. It's just to like an American city. Yeah, that is like th- yeah, th- well, that is that is that is going to happen sooner than later. Wh- whether that be caused by accident by some type of climate natural disaster or on purpose by a militia, like that is it's just a matter of time until we have to deal with this massive problem. Yeah. Um, and it's like I, I've been reading recently about um Uruguay and what happened with them in like the seventies when their dictatorship took over. And they had a left wing group that was like very much engaged in kind of a lot of acts of poetic terrorism, like, you know, robbing banks to steal paperwork that they would then hand over to like somebody to reveal malfeasance within a company or like stealing uh, trucks of food, going to like some big wealthy Christmas party and redistributing it in poor neighborhoods. Pretty rad stuff. And one of the ways in which the, the, the new incoming dictatorial regime cracked down on them is they deputized like 10,000 chuds and gave them guns and sent them in with the army. Um, and I was like, yeah, I could absolutely see shit I like can that happening. Absolutely if there was, see that happening. Yeah, yeah, like if there was some sort of uprising in a in a, a liberal city, there's er, rural areas around them filled with chuds. Um, and, waiting and there, to, and there is preci- there is precedent for police doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, they have done it within your our eye shot, Garrison. Yes. <laughs> like on small scales. Yeah. Um, so. I think we'll have one more break and come back and talk about a uh, talk about a hedge fund. Oh fuck! I love hedge funds. Let me get let me get my hedge fund shirt out. The shirt that I wear when talking about hedge funds. All right, I have my hedge fund shirt on. Um, as you can all see, it's a picture of Ringo Starr filleting himself. I don't know why that's my hedge fund shirt. I'm sorry, I don't, Garrison. I don't know either, but I love the Beach Boys. Um. Anyway, so yep, thank you. Perfect. <laughs> Nailed it. Uh. What, 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 what? Should we talk about this hedge fund guy? Yes, I, I do want to talk about this hedge fund guy because this is when someone I, with this much money is talking about this. Wh- one, just for fun, right? He's yeah. doing this just for shits for and funsies. giggles. Yeah, yeah, he's doing it for shits and giggles, and he wrote a book kind of on this topic. And he proposed one one solution. He 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 came up with one thing that'll prevent us from entering a civil war, um, which shows how smart these hedge fund people are. Yeah. Um, but first, uh, I, I Chris would love to. I, I would love for you to explain who who this who this dude is. Okay, so Ray, Ray Dalio is 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 a hedge fund manager, and he is. So he 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 runs Bridge Bridgewater Associates, which is one allegedly of the, one of the, the world's, world's largest hedge fund firm. 
Yeah, it's, it, it depends how you define everything. But yeah, it's, 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 it's a very large Allegedly. hedge fund. And this guy, this guy is weird by like venture capital standards. So the, the, the Bridgewater's whole thing is that everyone in the company is constantly surveilled at all times. And anyone else within the company can look at what anyone else is doing. It's supposed to be this like, oh, it's like total transparency. And what, what it actually means, again, is that like you can you can look at like fucking what any of your colleagues like also working at this place is doing just fucking at their day job. You can see all their records. You can see everything they're looking at. And the other thing that he's known for is that he doesn't trust anyone else to like run the hedge fund after he retires or dies. So he's trying to build like a, like a cybernetic version of his brain to keep running the hedge fund. The, like other hedge fund weirdos think this guy is fucking wild. And it, yeah, he's, he's a time and he runs one of the world's largest hedge funds. It's great. It's, we, it's, it, yeah. it's amazing and good. We give these people this much money to control. So I will yeah, say when it comes to his actual analysis of like, whether or not it's likely, I don't particularly disagree with anything. Yes. I, yeah. I, t- yes. It's, it's broadly reasonable. Yeah. It, it's it, not, it, it, his yeah. Lo- looking. Yeah. I'm, for one, he's just doing this because he, because he thinks it's fun. He has enough mm-hmm. money. He's going to survive whatever. Um, but yeah, his, his, well, he's also, I mean, part of why this is fairly credible is he's, I mean, if you're, if you're good at this, it means that you have one actual talent, which is, is judging risk. Yeah. Um, and I think he's probably pretty good at judging risk. Yeah, so he, he, he said that he believes there's like a high likelihood that a civil war or something resembling it will break out within the decade. Um, 30% is the number he gives. He, it's the number he gives, and then he, he, he um, yeah, wait, let's see. Yeah, he said, uh, there's also, he, he gave a quote that he says, it's, uh, we're, we're in a, we're in a, a, a high risk position right now. Um, yeah. And, yeah, he, he, he talks about the different kind of reasons why he believes so in this book, most of which are like, pretty reasonable um in terms of like uh in, ter- in terms of like looking at a population and how much how like you know the the various like pol- polarization between uh, politics and and culture and all this kind of stuff um but the the solution that he gives to this is that um we should make a formal judgment for quote unquote close elections and have the losers respect the outcomes. And then once that happens, the order is going to be like restored and respected. And then we will avert a civil war. So he, he thinks that a civil war will probably be like enacted by some type of election dispute, which that is actually very reasonable uh, in terms of of what happened in our last election. If there's like a big, if there's a big election dispute that could absolutely spark some type of conflict. But the idea that, we can avert a civil war by yeah. just having an, yeah. an organization to judge close elections. It's like, but that's Have not going to solve that America, problem, bro. Like, yeah. that's not going to. If you do that, that's not going to solve the close election problem. That doesn't. That, yep. Even if you do it, that won't be a solution. You know, yeah. and, and I, I, I will say, like, yeah, excuse me, I'm saying, credit, credit where minor credit is due. Ray Dalio is in fact right that the the difference between. 2000 which is when the last time someone actually literally stole an election happened yes. where yeah but bush bush openly rigs the election it's incredibly obvious for, like there's like six ways he does this everyone knows it's happening and the reaction is everyone just kind of shrugs because they're like oh the supreme court's legitimate compared to both 2016 and 2020 which yeah that, that's you know that's 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 an, an there, there, there there's been an actual break there it's just that I don't know. Maybe I think it's it's almost just like a lib brain thing where it's like you think that if, if you have an institution that sets down rules 
this this will make everything okay because everyone will obey it and that's just not where we are anymore yeah i mean there was just a a a poll that came out recently that showed like americans trust in the military has fallen to its lowest level ever registered and like that was kind of the one thing left that most people felt positively about Uh, not to say that's even a good thing but just like the there is such a complete fucking lack of faith in institutions across the spectrum in the United States that it's like how unless you're hiring I don't know um fucking no I would say Tom Hanks but Tom Hanks has even gotten politicized e- even now he's because been he believes in viruses so yeah there's no one they could pick to get do this job that people would yeah. feel good about <laughs> if they. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure if they brought Mr. Rogers back from the dead, half the country would call him a cuck. So I don't, I don't know what to, what, I don't know who Dalio thinks is going to like get everybody on board. So maybe, yeah. maybe, uh, maybe, um, Danny DeVito, Danny DeVito might be able to do it. Well, I think if if we put all of our hope in Danny DeVito, that is a better solution than. What any of these articles have it put out? It beats the Supreme Court. <laughs> it, 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 it beats it beats every other quote beats unquote solution the shit out of the Supreme Court. I mean, that these to, articles to, are posited. To, to I mean, fair, Bob Odenkirk brought Twitter together that one week. Maybe that we is could true. Try yeah, him. yeah. You know, with, with respect to the Supreme Court, if you just picked twelve random people off the street and were yes. like, "You're the I would new feel Supreme fine Court. about twelve random." Yeah, it'd be people great. No, that's that's yeah. the thing. It's like I am I am all for it's it, the term isn't a, the term isn't a democracy. Um, it's it's a, I, f- I forget the other specific Sortition. term. Yes, of of uh, almost I, I forget exactly, but it it it's when a government is not composed of elected leaders, it's composed of a random selected a, a random mm-hmm. selection of of, of people, and yeah, they yeah, make decisions, okay. and then their decisions over, then we then we get a, a new selection. I'm all for that model of, of government over almost any other. It sounds um, way better than what we have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. That that is that is the three pieces I want to talk about the 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 independent piece on the hedge fund, uh, Brookings Institution on the Civil War, and then uh, Brian. Well, no, not not Brian. Uh, yes, uh, uh, Brian Michael Jenkins, um, senior advisor to the president of Rand. Brymy J. Brymage. Who 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 wrote the uh, who who wrote the uh, the thing for NBC? So yeah, that is just the terms of in terms of you know people in institutions talking about this topic more. Generally, in sometimes decent ways, oftentimes not decent ways. That is, that is the stuff from like the just the past, between the past week to month of people with big salaries talking about uh, the Civil War. Yeah. Or in terms of the in terms of the hedge fund guy, uh, not a salary, just billions of dollars. Yeah, just billions of dollars, and thinking it's neat. Um, I don't know. You know, uh, every time one of these comes out, I get tagged by a bunch of people. Um, saying like, Robert, it's the thing you were talking about. Other people are talking about it. And um, I don't know. I don't like that this is the thing other people are talking about that I've been talking about as opposed to mass Zeppelin transit or something more fun. Yeah, these people yeah. could dedicate their resources to something more manageable for them and because they don't have a good grasp, especially the Brian Michael Jenkins guy has, has no grasp on how extremism works. No. Um and it would be better if they dedicate the resources to something else, but this is the world we live in. It would be better if perhaps Brian Michael Jenkins dedicated his his efforts and his platform at NBC to looking into Mr. Dario and whatever the fuck he's been up to. Um, <laughs> that might that might do more. Terrifying he, man. He'd just Terrifying. get Panama. He would absolutely. Brian Michael Jenkins would get Panama so fucking quick. 
All right, you well, be the panamaniest motherfucker in journalism. Just, just like not even, not even downtime before that car gets bombed. As I he's think... talking on air. <laughs> the uh, okay, Brian Michael Jenkins is seventy nine years old. So, <laughs> oh, it won't. It wouldn't be hard oh. to stop him. Yeah, I'm just. Oh no. Just... Just Dario, thinking, that that that's like a ten minute job. I'm just I'm just <laughs> thinking like Brian Michael Jenkins. He's a quote unquote an American expert on terrorism and transportation security with four decades of analysis. I'm like this is why he doesn't understand modern extremism. It's because yeah, he's still thinking in the seventies mode. That's yeah, I'm why sure he, I'm that's, sure ninety percent of his thoughts on terrorism are just him rehashing opinions about like Hezbollah in the eighties. Yeah, all uh, of all of his stuff is super dated. So yeah. that's that. that that's, right. I, I I I said that previously is that he he still views terrorism as like as it was in the seventies and yeah this is this is why. Um, yeah. So that's great guy. That's okay, that's cool. him. Um. Anyway, that wraps up our show. Um. Yeah. Uh. Watch out for I the one the one Brian Michael Jenkins prediction I do think will happen is that there's a decent chance we might be back in uh, assassination territory because yeah. it has been it has been a long time since that has happened. It's it's yeah. it has been a hot minute. And definite also, decrease in bowling leagues. Well, definite it keeps decrease. happening in the UK. Yeah, I, I was meaning specifically in 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 America. In well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is that, like we're we're not that far away from them in terms no. of like things happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the, like, I'm I'm kind of surprised it hasn't. Ha- I think it's probably just because maybe American legislators are all much more concerned about assassination because guns uh so people like our elected leaders take more precautions than british ones did i don't know maybe i don't um, know either well speaking of assassinations you can follow us on twitter and instagram at happened here pod and cool zone media mm-hmm. if we go missing it was ray dalio if we go missing it was ray dalio yeah goodbye, goodbye everybody <laughs> Baseball fans, BetMGM is giving you the chance to win a prize every day during the baseball season. Step into the batter's box for BetMGM's Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. Pick an area of the strike zone and take your best swing. If you get a single, double, triple, or home run, you'll receive a prize. Smash a home run to collect a bonus bet on us. Just log into your BetMGM sports account to get started. Then visit your promotions section to access the Swing for the Fences free-to-play game. There's nothing more exciting than going yard with the king of sportsbooks. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. Must be 21 plus and present in Ohio. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards vary depending on market and expire 24 hours from issuance. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. 
Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit tomboyx.com to shop. High Five Casino Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at HighFiveCasino.com. The hottest games right from Vegas and all winnings go straight to your bank account. Hundreds of exclusive games, free daily rewards, and come back to get free coins every four hours. Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social casino. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited. Play responsibly. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details at HighTheNumber5Casino.com. High Five Casino. Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a a podcast. Yep, I can say it. Uh, A podcast. That's what we're doing, and it's about it's about how things are kind of kind kind of falling apart sometimes, or at least it feels like it. And I don't know. Maybe we can do some things to help make it better, like what happened recently in terms of uh, forests. So, hey, a good news episode. Whoa, rare, rare, rare episode drop for us. Uh, we got some good news. So I'm going to be talking with uh, Sam, who was on a previous episode discussing a forest defense, about uh, an update on on all of the things that we were talking about a few weeks ago. Um, so yeah, I think we can we can pretty much get into it, and then then we'll talk about some other stuff around kind of forests in general. So hello, Sam. Thank thank you for joining me again to talk about uh, trees. One of one of our favorite topics. Hello, my pleasure, always. So I think it was like a day or two after we dropped the episode or something, or I, th- I think it was actually, it was maybe maybe even like right, like right before um, we got some extra, extra news about uh, all about the post, about the post fire logging um, near the Brightbush uh, watershed. Um, yeah. What happened there? <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty wild, actually. Uh, it was really serendipitous timing, too. Um, we, as I think we mentioned in the last podcast, we were awaiting the first hearing for the court case. Um, essentially, you know, we believed that the plan to log in that area for myriad reasons was not only unethical, but also illegal. Um, and so it was going to court and we were um, awaiting a hearing that happened um, on December 3rd, a Friday. And Uh, Typically, the judge does not rule from the bench in these sorts of hearings, and so we did not expect a decision on that day. Um, But sure enough, the judge felt uh, strongly enough about this case and sure enough about her decision that she did rule from the bench and ruled in our favor. And so, yay, victories. Um, Now we have um, a preliminary injunction in place, meaning that no logging can happen there, um, at least until this uh, timber sale has its real day in court or until the Forest Service just drops this shenanigan entirely, which hopefully they, they will do. But we'll see. Yeah, so they, they, uh, they, blocked, they blocked the post-fire logging and the, uh, the, and the uh, basically start, start, starting to clear-cut these areas without, without actual like, public input and without actually going through the, the process. As flawed as the process may be, they were just skipping it entirely. So that, that, was, um, that, was, that was blocked by this, uh, by, by this legal case. Um, 
what was I guess yeah well what was what was the uh what what was the what what was the reaction like in 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 the room and in the various signal chats when <laughs> when this when this happened yeah in the ether spheres um the reaction was super awesome I mean so many people love this place and that was kind of the whole point of what we were trying to do when we did the direct action out there a number of yeah. weeks ago was just demonstrate how many people love this place and how the Forest Service wasn't going to get away with what they were planning to do. Um, because people, as we promised, would be back if they tried to log it and move forward with that logging, which, as you pointed out, and as we said last time, was super sketchy, not only because it was a terrible plan that they were planning to do um, in this beloved forest, but also because it was behind locked gates that the public yeah. wasn't allowed into. And so um, it was just this you know, travesty that was about to happen. And when we found out um, and when we heard the judge's incredibly strong ruling, um, we you know, were absolutely overjoyed. Um, the news spread you know, like wildfire, excuse the pun, hey! had to do it, had to do it. <laughs> Um, and just, you know, all the signal threads were popping. People were putting it on Twitter. People were reposting the sexy photos of the blockade with the giant slash pile and the fire truck and the band on top of the fire truck. And I just wish that we all could have hung out again and had another dance party because it was the best. That does sound incredibly, incredibly rad. Um, was, was like your, I, this, this, this is something I don't, I don't, don't actually know. But also, like, was like the documentation that was taking place by by going to these places and showing, hey, this is where they're cutting. Was that brought up in the court case in terms of like, hey, this is we actually went and saw what's actually happening. So it was was that type of evidence uh, used, and did it in your mind like um um uh, 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 kind of be a small part of like the result of the ruling? Yeah, it definitely was, and that is such an important point. And I really hope that everyone who's listening can just like put that in their minds for later, how important it is for people to be um, field surveying, or sometimes we call it ground truthing um, these places and actually collecting documentation, photographic evidence. Um, a lot of folks do kind of like what we call community surveying and collect um, some site specific um, kind of like uh, community science sort of stuff. Um, but all of that was used in court and it was super awesome. Um, I actually was one of the standing declarants. So I got to submit a lot of evidence from my many years of traveling that place um, and that all of that was referenced in court. So, so, so important. Um, even, you know, when the Forest Service is essentially trying to kick everyone out and keep everyone out of these places, really important to go um, and see them anyways. Um, obviously, you know, everyone needs to consider how they do that and their own security and safety. Um, and it's becoming difficult, um, but certainly putting eyes on threatened places is one of the best tools we have to save them. Yeah, and I just think that's really Im important to really focus on that as, like, a thing. Because, like, yeah, stuff that people did actually had an impact on this not happening right now. Um, and, yeah, but like, by going out there and documenting and then talking about it, um, it has, like, an actual, like, causal relation which is very hard to it's it, it's hard to get direct causal uh stuff to happen in like the general umbrella of activism um and it's i think it's it's just really exciting that uh that that this happened um yeah that's so true it does feel in the general umbrella of activism really hard to point to things that we do that are actually making an effect and this is totally one of them i mean when, uh, if and when this case does um, have its day in court, um, 
you know, outside of the preliminary injunction itself. Um, I am sure that so much of that evidence from um, all the folks who've been traveling there um, and documenting it will be used. We documented, you know, so many green living trees in places the Forest Service said were dead. Um, you know, so many like unused roads in places the Forest Service said they needed to log alongside these roads because they're so trafficked and they are posing a safety yeah. hazard. And so it's basically like, you know, the best way to expose their gaslighting and lies is to just go document what's there yeah because a, a big part of their ability to do this is utilizing deception in terms of like and and and, and utilizing like non-information like they're just not talking about the stuff that's actually happening or they're doing like white lies to make it sound better so they're just they're they're lying about the type of like um uh the, the type of sales that they're doing with these with these trees and like how they're classifying the trees that they're logging to like get it past all of the loopholes but they're not actually like that's not actually reality they're just changing the terms to make it fit what they want so like as, as soon as you start looking into this stuff it gets all it gets very sketchy because it is it, it, they're just lying about a lot of this stuff so like if, if you're like listening and be like oh you know, be, these people just love trees. I'm like, yes, we, we do love trees. But like the actual thing that's going on is like they're lying about the types of damage that's being done. They're lying about what areas this is happening in all to just rack up more timber sales. Like that, that, is, that, that, is, that is what's actually happening. Um, and so that's so, so important to say like loudly and clearly because the Forest Service and other management agencies are experts in making the public feel dumb and yes. wrong and misinformed. And right now, even we sound a little wing nutty being like, yeah, absolutely. The service, you know, like, let us be clear. A federal judge agrees with us. Yeah. Yeah. And, that is, you, know, right? <laughs> you know, like we're not the ones who are wrong here. And I think you're totally right. You know, they're using a mixture of blatant lies, um, but also euphemisms. Like we, yeah. no one's, they don't, they don't use the word clear cut anymore. They're using all of these euphemisms, you know, regeneration harvest. I shit you not. It's and, a and real a, term. And a, a lot of and a lot of the stuff that they're deciding to do is like not open to the public. You need to do like FOIA requests to to, to actually learn what they're doing because they don't talk about it. Like the, it is all it is all extremely sketchy. And yeah, like the fact that like a federal a federal judge agreed with like green activists is not a sentence you hear often so like it's like yeah like no, this is actually a thing and it's, it's important to remember like you are not immune to propaganda like all a lot of this stuff is uh is has people who want a lot of money are vested in making people believe things about 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 like force management and all this kind of stuff um yeah, I know it, it may it may sound crazy when we're talking about you know the secret Illuminati of the Forest Service, but like no, like it act like it, it's it is a it is a governmental organization. All governmental organizations are kind of sketchy, especially when their sole purpose is to well, one of their purposes is to make money or assist in like sales of something. Like yeah, it's it's gonna have some sketchy stuff. Um, Absolutely, and also you know in the realm of just like the propaganda machine, um, we you know just the other day. Um, a hilarious response piece um, came out from the timber industry, an organization called Federal Forest Resource Coalition, which is just a coalition of loggers, um, yeah. put out this hilarious little mini video responding directly to the line that we've been using in forest events, which is worth more standing. Our forests are worth more standing. And they put out a hilarious response that is essentially, you know, pushing this timber sale, uh, this logging propaganda saying, well, actually, our forests aren't worth anything standing after they've been burned and they're contributing to the climate crisis and they're yeah. destructive, and, you know, and all these things. And so 
Totally. I mean, even people who see it with their eyes can be convinced by these voices that they're wrong because they're so good, so good at making us feel just like we're the wrong ones, but we're not. We got this. Yeah. In, in terms of like this, the secret of kind of decision making and stuff behind the scenes in terms of like uh, the, the types of like terms they're using to to, you know, do like restoration thinning um, <laughs> and all this stuff around around trying to like basically just, just take as many trees from the bright uh, British watershed as they can. I know the, the, the judge said that uh, uh, she was, quote, disappointed in the agency uh, for for all of their silly behind the scenes trench coat meet in a dark alleyway to pass off information type of thing um which is right. yeah like so what 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 is what is some of the other kind of um stuff that the forest service and the related organizations were trying to were trying to hide like what like what 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 was the stuff that like came out um via this legal process that was like yeah like what what's what's, the, what's a few of the actual things that they were that they were trying to do that eventually like came to light. Mm-hmm. The major thing is that they were trying to get away with changing the logging contracts without doing any additional environmental analysis or public engagement process. Yeah. And so there were before the 2020 fires, there were there was a plan to do what they what we had fought them so hard to get them to agree to do, which was not log a bunch of these, this older stands, protect tree. They had a diameter limit on trees that they were going to log. So we basically like slapped their hands off of all of these trees. And finally we're like, okay, we won't sue you if you move forward with the plan as stated. And it had very strong sideboards and, you know, even local folks were like, okay, go do this. And then the fires came through. And so what they were trying to do was just change the plans. They turned it all into clear cuts in the forest that we slapped their hands off of. And they were trying to argue that they didn't need to do any additional analysis and they didn't need to engage the public. And even in court, you know, that's what they were arguing. Um, They were were doing some stupid magic math and, you know, somersaults um, to try and explain how they had already done an analysis uh, that accounted somehow for the fires that no one could have ever predicted. That was before it actually happened. Yeah. No, yeah, that was- So the judge was like, just, you know, she was just roundly like, y'all couldn't have predicted. I like to give her, you know, Southern accent. Y'all <laughs> couldn't have predicted. <laughs> Judge Aiken, from the South, no. Uh, you couldn't have predicted, uh, you know, that the fires were going to burn through. And so there's no way you could have done analysis for fire that you didn't know was going to happen here, you silly little beasts. But she yeah. did talk to them, you know, as if they were just naughty little children, which I loved to hear. You know, the disappointed in the Forest Service was... <laughs> A major move. And I think the other one that came up is just, you know, the Forest Service was arguing that they needed, quote, need to do this logging um, for restoration, for economic recovery, um, and to prevent future wildfires from severely burning in the area. All of that too, BS. Like one thing that the, the judge said that was super strong um, was that she sees, and obviously I'm paraphrasing here, um, but she she sees that the community loves this place. It's obvious that this is like a beloved place. And she, you know, essentially understands that the forest is worth more standing. She said that she wanted, she thinks that the forest needs an opportunity to recover from the fires. And so basically just called the BS on the Forest Service for their hilarious, you know, justifications for logging all the, we're going to save the forest by logging it is just not, it's not right, not accurate. And the judge agrees. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm very very excited about about this ruling and what it means for the future, and at least at least at least postponing this until um, if 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 the if if the lawsuit is going going to go through, or if it, or if they're just going to drop this, which they also very well may be, they might decide to focus on another part that they just, that they just don't tell anybody about and start doing it there, and then you know we'll we'll start we'll start this again. But uh, for this particular area, um, that is it is very exciting and. Yeah, it is. It is rare for a federal judge to agree with uh, people on this topic. Um, now, I, I want to talk about a few other kind of stuff around like forests um, and how and how these kind of types of things work. I, I did get an interesting comment, which I totally agree with, in terms of like how propaganda works in this department um, and how like uh, how like logging towns operate or how like towns became logging towns. How like they're basically able to convince local populations that logging is is like good because like yeah like they're they're going to they're going to move into this town they're going to restore the town because they're going to bring in new money through like a logging industry um and yeah this is a very like very like a, a a typical move whether it be for like you know coal mining whether that be for pipelines in terms of like big companies going into small towns to be like hey we can promise you economic growth if you can like assist in this you know extractive process and they'll be able to convince them with you know misleading statistics and you know all, all that kind of stuff. In terms of logging industry, is getting getting really good at radicalizing rural populations to have them believe that it's one well, not it's it's not like economically destructive to take down trees. They might even say it's like good, um, and all all that kind of stuff. Has has have has there been like any outreach in terms of kind of addressing? addressing people in small towns who like maybe used to like you know rely on on logging or something and how does how does that work because i know like they'll be like oh but you people come from the city and now you're coming out here into like the woods where i live and i think this is good that they're chopping down these trees right there's 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 like that kind of that, that kind of disconnection because again no one no one's immune to propaganda you, you just you just just have to find the specific one um so yeah, I'm just curious about like in terms of in terms of like forest defense, how often this comes up, and how and how you kind of kind of I don't know what's what steps to make to to be like to, to tell people, hey, maybe you're believe these things because timber industries told you them. Like how yeah. how, how how do you start that conversation with people? Yeah, this is like actually the heart of the forest defense work ahead. What you're talking about right now, the heart of our work ahead. Um, and I would also say, you know, there is a there's certainly um, a dichotomy that the media especially likes to present between yeah. the rural uh, logging communities and, you know, Portland or city based environmentalists the, and the hippie that, environmentalists who like come in. And yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And everyone's familiar with that. And there's, of course, some truth um, to that. But I want to say, like, super clearly, there are so many rural folks who do not yeah. support the logging industry. And so that's like a false dichotomy that gets presented to us right off the bat. And a lot of those, you know, for in the, in um, the work that I've been doing on forest uh, forest defense, essentially we're always connecting with folks on the ground in, the, in literally the backyards of these logging proposals. And many of them are super uninterested in having their backyards clear cut. And so we, you know, the we we push directly against that mythology that you know it's just environmentalists coming in from Portland because we work directly with people, including for Brighton Bush, but with every single thing that we work on, directly with people who are literally on the front lines of that logging. That said, 
there is absolutely um, a huge pull. Um, you know, Oregon specifically is you know famous for logging. Like we talked yeah. about last time, there's a logger on top of the Capitol. Um, you know, our the mayor of Portland the is mayor from logging money. Yeah. It's in Oregon's Oregonians' blood. It, it, it is. It is baked in heavily. Yeah, and for rural Oregonians, um, there are economic realities where, in some cases, some counties uh, benefit from um, logging in their totally from the yeah. logging industry. Their school, you know, schools are tied to logging money, um, and there's, you know, in a lot of ways, a narrative that um, is not really accurate anymore, but has like an element of nostalgia to it, like you know, logging towns and. Um, this old story about how things yeah. used to work with small, small family logging, that's not how it is anymore. But that narrative, that like nostalgic narrative yeah. carries on into a lot of communities. And so what I, the way that I like to cut through that um, for people is by making it really clear that there is a difference between small, you know, family loggers of lore um, and, and, you know, of, you know, people's what people are attached to. And the kinds of what we're seeing today is we're looking at Wall Street logging. We're looking at Wall Street invested, um, invested huge, you know, corporate industries um, who owned, who who still own like, you know, per huge percentages of our drinking watersheds of our um, communities. Some some of the communities on the coast are owned primarily by private industrial Wall Street funded um logging corporations. And that's, you know, those aren't mom and pop. They're not living in the community. They're living often not even on the Pacific Northwest. These are rich ass assholes who are destroying our bioregion. And, you know, I think that making it clear that those aren't, those folks are not like us, you know, those are not like rural Oregonians. Your those are not your friends. Those are not, you know, your pals or your neighbors. And just cutting through that narrative that like, oh, you know, logging communities, um, you know, loggers are your friendly neighbor. Actually, no, loggers are Wall Street, um, you know, investment corporations, rich, moneyed people who are doing this destruction and just kind of like breaking that, I guess, like that, um, that attachment that people have to this idea that's just not a reality anymore. The reality is that people who are for logging in rural communities are, they have a lot more common with those of us who are fighting logging than the actual people doing the logging, if that makes sense. Like there's a lack of understanding of what the logging industry actually is. It's like back to that nostalgia, like people who are against logging in rural communities, um, you know, often genuinely do not realize that this is Wall Street and like who's doing this logging. They're still thinking it's their, you know, neighbor or their friend. And it's, yeah. you know, these stories. But, you know, the reality is that, you know, this is corporate timber owners who are maximizing their financial gain by buying out small landowners all over the place, um, ensuring that they aren't taxed by lobbying heavily in the government. So they don't, you know, have any sort of taxation that then goes back to benefit our communities. Don't even get me started about how many taxes the timber industry skips out on that could actually benefit our communities and our schools and our libraries and our fire departments, but aren't. Um, and then they're adopting exploitative labor practices. Basically, you know, the contracted workers who are in the logging industry right now, who are doing the logging and hauling um, and, and reforestation, so-called reforestation, planting of monocrop plantations, they are experiencing flat wages and declining work quality conditions. Um, meanwhile, while the corporate timber forms are expanding their profits, 
um, and, you know, getting more wealthy investors. So that is the reality of the timber industry. These are not, you know, your friendly neighborhood loggers anymore. So a few other points I wanted to bring up kind of on force itself. Someone, someone said something about how we talked about like old growth and, and, and I guess they think that we said that all forest in this area is old growth. And that's not something we actually said. Old growth is, is a specific term that means a specific thing. And yeah, regardless of it being old growth or not, they still shouldn't be cut down. I don't. So I'm not sure why this point was really raised because we didn't, I, I, I did, I don't think we did uh, say that every, that every tree in there is, is, is old growth. Um, a, a lot of them were planted in the past few hundred years. Um, but that, that doesn't mean like they're like, much less important it's like just because they're not old growth doesn't mean we shouldn't be preserving this particular watershed in this particular environment and not be clear-cutting all of it um, yeah old growth is like a fetish like the term old growth is just like become fetishized to mean this like this thing that you know there's also let's be clear there's not an agreement on what old growth actually means across the board even between agencies like there is an arbitrary date cutoff that the federal government uses to define old growth um, but obviously if you walk into a forest stand there's a healthy, you know, a healthy old growth stand is uh, complex in terms of age diversity. There's going to be old growth individual trees. There's going to be a lot of younger trees. There's going to be horizontal and vertical diversification. Like old growth is complicated. It's messy. But the whole point is like, it, you're right. Like it doesn't actually matter if it's like, quote, in the the, the small narrow category of what the Forest Service would define as old growth. If it's a forest that's been around for, you know, hundred years, or even, you know, I would argue if it's a forest that's over like 70 or 80 years old, what are we doing cutting that down? Um, that forest, Especially now. Yeah. Especially now, you know, that's storing so much carbon safely in the ground. And also by that age, it's had the opportunity, you know, to, to become more diverse than these like monocrop plantations that we're seeing younger forests. So I would argue any forest that's not a monocrop plantation, a young monocrop plantation should absolutely not be clear cut. It's just an inappropriate activity to do in native forests. And, and spe speaking of a clear cut, there was another uh, another uh, comment was about how clear cutting can sometimes be good because it creates new environments for other animals and living things to exist in. And I find this to be a really weird comment to make. Um, I don't I don't quite understand this this like kind of idea because. Yes, of of course. If you cut down a forest, you are creating a new environment, but that's not where that environment should be, nor is it where it is. It's like if you if you erect a whole bunch of concrete skyscrapers where a forest used to be, yeah, you're also making a new environment. But I would say we probably shouldn't do that, though. I I don't. That's not that's not a good thing. S same thing with like the people obsessed with like putting solar panels in the desert. Like the desert's an actual like environment. Like it, it has in there is reasons for why deserts need to exist and that have its whole uh, like a a, a whole uh, like a whole a whole environment and a whole um I I I I, I forget the word but like. And it has an entire system of living things that exist there that should. Um, we we don't need to terraform everything. I don't think that's like I don't. We shouldn't. I think preserving the environment in general, preserving the environments that are existing and who are creating like ecosystems, is a good thing. I think that generally the less terraforming, probably probably the better. At least right now when we're dealing with. <laughs> A massive, like, looming climate crisis that's caused by us terraforming the earth. Um, maybe we should not do that as much. 
Yeah, we could call that a general rule. Like no more terraforming, y'all. Just leave it. Let's just let's just leave pause. It. Let's leave pause it. for a bit. We just address <laughs> yeah. some other things. But for real though, whoever wrote that comment, I mean, that is a timber industry talking point that yeah, I hear all yeah, the time. Right? It's literally that is literally and and whether they meant it or not. You know, this is how the timber industry gets us. They're real good at this. This is their, you know, nice sounding talking points that we rebut all the time, um, you know, not just in media, but also in court. Um, and the talking point is clear cuts mimic natural disasters like severe fires by replacing, you know, but and it's they, part they, of the they process. They totally don't. They don't. It, it does so not, go look it, at a clear yeah. cut, go look at a fire. It's a completely different experience. And I could go down that rabbit hole all day on fire ecology another time, maybe. But suffice it to say, you know, what they're arguing is that they're, they're creating young forest or, quote, early seral habitat by clear cutting an old forest. But what they're actually doing is deforestation. They're replacing an old forest with something that's not a forest. A young yeah. monocrop plantation is a crop. It is not a forest. And so they are deforesting and um, it is ecosystem. It is ecocide. And um, yeah, yeah. It, is, it, is. It, it is. It is. It, it is ecocide. And I think, yeah, the, the insistence that like it's, it's good because it will allow some species to exist in this new environment. Like, yeah, but there's other environments where they can't exist. And we don't we don't need to be destroying the ones that are already kind of important and doing good stuff to make room for other ones that aren't already there. And they argue um, that the deer and the butterflies love the clear cuts. And so just call that out as bullshit next time y'all hear that. It's, you know, spread the word. That is some timber industry BS. They're tricksy, but don't let them get you. And the, 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 the last thing I wanted to mention is why blocking off access to these areas is bad. Because um, I got uh, someone, someone said something like, um, you know, because 90, 95% of uh, fires are human caused, Closing off public lands is it can be good because then fires won't get started in those areas. And this really un, this, this misunderstands why fires get started, and also is just a bad thing to do anyway. Because like fire, if if you look at like the map of where wildfires start, um, almost all of them are on the path of highways. Um, specifically in California, that when when the fires were really bad in twenty twenty, there was this there was this firefighter who who made, who made a great video about like why the fire line was all next to the highway, and there was like conspiracy theories of like including like Antifa's driving down highways and setting the forest on fire, which was which was an actual popular talking point because we live in the hell world. Um, but like you know, he's explaining like the reason why like they are like human caused. But they're not like a lot of them aren't intentionally caused. It's because that's where power lines run, and this is where a lot of uh, sparks can ignite stuff on the edges of of uh, of highways that will then take out a part of the forest. Now, every once in a while, there is a gender reveal party that goes horribly <laughs> wrong and does and and does ignite it. That is true, and I think the solution to that is not closing down the forest. It's not having gender reveal parties. That, yeah, that is how about we don't do that either? We stop selling. Uh, uh, on Amazon, I mean, I'm all for Tannerite as an idea, but how about let's stop selling uh, blue and pink Tannerite packets to people who don't know how to use explosives? To rich uh, like, assholes well, who genuinely don't know about because fire. yeah, like they're yeah. not they're not actually using Tannerite for what it's meant for, and they're not using it to, to do like like training. Um, they're using it to say that they're having a baby, and this has caused a lot of wildfire death. So how yeah. how about we just stop selling uh, the gender reveal party bombs? And I think that'd be a better solution than closing down massive swaths of public land. Um, and how about our power line companies get their shit together and stop? Yeah. Uh, do actually have a plan for 
planned power shutoffs. And actually, you know, we know now actually Pacific Corp is in court right now because they started the Santiam fires. Their power line started the Santiam fires and the Archie Creek fires and probably more. And so, yeah, how about yeah. the power line companies get their shit together? But I feel like the other huge thing here is that, you know, the suggestion that we should close off these forests to the public to me is just like m- more, uh, you know, it's, you know, blatantly it's racist. Um, and it's, you know, I think it's wrong because these lands these belong to indigenous people. We should be giving these lands back to indigenous people. And, yeah. you know, when we're talking about like rural communities too, in a just transition, like rural community members should actually have more say in what happens in their backyard forests. should be able to be more engaged um, in, you know, the forests that literally provide them with their drinking water um, and, you know, all of the things that they need um, to survive. So I, we should not be, you know, locking off these lands and keeping humans out. Humans have a place in these lands, I've always had a place and a role in these lands. And um, if we take leadership from the right folks, then we could totally live in a much more reasonable way than the gender reveal party path. Yeah. And like, I don't know if you know this, but like being in the forest is great. It's like, (laughs) it is great to be surrounded by giant trees. It makes you feel awesome. Last thing I want to talk about is um, you, you mentioned before, like, getting people who live in these rural areas who used to rely on logging, getting them more involved and doing a just transition. Because this is a topic that comes out, that comes up on climate change like everywhere in terms of like, you know, like countries that are still developing, not being able to have access to the same amount of fossil fuels that countries like the states, you know, had when they, when, when they were developing. And like, how is that fair? Right. This is, this is like, this is a very common thing of in terms of countries that are better off um, need, will, you know, have kind of kind of like a duty to assist assist uh, countries that are trying to develop and trying to get better standards of living um because we profited off of fossil fuels and now they won't have the same opportunity if we're trying to you know get to a carbon neutral world um so in terms of like a just a just transition this is something like you know at cop 26 there was supposed to be funding for adaptation efforts in in the d- developing countries now that failed because of course it did because it's COP26. But in terms of like in terms of like this this idea of a just transition, how do you see this like locally in the rural environment within the states and for for like these types of areas? Because like yeah, because it, it's similar to like coal mining towns, similar to you know logging towns. How how does how how do you see this working? Yeah, this is something I think about so much. Um, and we actually put out um, a platform called a Green New Deal for our forests in the Pacific Northwest that talks like all about what a just transition could look like for communities. But I mean, this is a dream. And I think it's like a really inspiring, uh, inspiring path forward, because what it means is that, you know, we're not saying to end logging and we're not saying that rural communities um, basically need to like stop existing and getting funding from logging. What we're saying is that rural community members, we, what we, that nostalgic dream that are, that people are clinging to, we actually want to have something in that regard. We would like people to, you know, engage with and interact with their local forests. Now that shouldn't look like clear cutting them because um, that's irresponsible and that doesn't benefit local communities or, you know, a benefit a future, but that could look like restoring these young monocrop plantations into complex, healthy forests. It could be look like bringing fire back onto the landscape with prescribed fire and cultural burning, taking lessons from indigenous folks who are doing that work. Um, It could look like education and recreation and so many things of like, you know, hands-on engagement with backyard forests that surround us. Um, And, you know, that, that could look like basically firing the Freddies 
and uh, taking this land and giving it to local communities with, um, you know, the with with conservation goals, but also goals to economically support via all of those ways, you know, jobs, but also jobs and recreation, um, economically support local communities. So basically, giving the land back to the local communities who rely on them and giving them power and control um, to care for them in ways that make sense. Because right now, Wall Street's caring for our forests, and really, it should be us. And I think one other thing on this topic for like how how well propaganda works. When I was um, at the Stopline Three uh, purchase camps last summer, in terms of like how do corporations get towns to start supporting these ideas, and how do they like foster this hatred of environmentalism, um, despite you know these areas often being the worst impact, one of the worst impacted ones by these uh, like effort efforts, right? Uh, you know, you're they're chopping down forests near where this town is. Pipeline is going next to the town. If it leaks, it's going to cause all this problem to like their water supply and stuff. But like how they do it, it's like the day of the direct action to block off the pipeline. Enbridge was sponsoring like a town fair in like the little downtown area. And it's like this super surreal moment of being like, oh, this is like I've read this happen in like comics before like this this is like this is like one of lex Luthor's favorite things to do is he'll like he'll like go into this like small town who's gonna start like this evil you know evil like a uh, uh, like lab at and he'll like fund like this small town event thing and like i've mm-hmm. like seen this before in so many superhero comics like i've seen this trope and now i'm just like living it you're just like watching it happen you're like driving past the town to go a block a pipeline and then you see like Enbridge with like a little stage and like a little like fair <laughs> and like everyone in the town's like dancing and they're giving out like free drinks and like oh no <laughs> like this is hearts like, this and is, minds baby yeah like you're you're like living the thing so like you know a lot of it's about like this idea of like rein like reinvigorating like like you know like the 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 like the the, the spirit of the town and injecting injecting new life into it so like you know this this is like a new one for like they're they're putting a pipeline down but like you know it's the same thing for like you know old like old coal towns old old logging towns so these corporations will come in you know make the town more active again start putting on events make it feel like more of a place and then that that gets so the company gets associated with positive changes right so then people who live in the town is like oh yeah Enbridge is doing all these good things for my town that must mean they actually you know are gonna care about us here and and help and help us out meanwhile these people from all around the country are driving through and trying to block the pipeline and the police are driving everywhere now it's all this chaos right these stupid environmentalists they don't understand how this is gonna you know it's it's we're creating so many jobs here which they actually didn't Enbridge outsourced most of the jobs out of state but they lied about the type of job creation you know all all all, all this type of stuff and this is a very a very common thing totally uh, and like timber everywhere. unity is like delivering uh wood to people when the when the snowstorm happened and everyone was cold and didn't have power and they were you know going door to door with mutual aid support um, but that is why, you know, a remember how like, everyone should remember how how tricksy and how dishonest these folks are. But also, b why um, those of us who want to see a different way need to be doing mutual aid too. Like we actually need to be out there in our communities and making friends and building trust and not just showing up to fuck shit up when it's time to fuck shit up. And I think that kind of like circles back to the point we talked about earlier, which is like. Building relationships with people on the front lines um, looks like so much more than just like the defense of a bad thing in their backyards. It looks like, you know, mutual aid um, because the industry is doing it um, and they're they're good at it and we need to be better. 
um, I think that wraps it up for us today. I guess what, what one thing I want to mention is like what what is going to happen going forward now after this after this legal victory. What's kind of just so, just 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 so people know, like what is like the next steps that are going to be taken on the legal process that will kind of determine what what happens um, with like you know direct actions and going to see the forest in like in the future. Yeah. Um, well, basically, we're waiting um, for a date for this court case. Um, and so that will hopefully be scheduled if it, if it ends up having to go through, which it might not. Um, obviously, there's going to be an effort made on behalf of lawyers um, to try and get the Forest Service to just stop, to just drop this shenanigan um, and walk away um, while they're, you know, where they're at. Um, because we we do think we have a really strong case um, that will win in court if it goes to court. So that's kind of like the legal avenue. Um, same story as what I said before, the last time we talked, you know, if if logging is going to move forward in that area, whether that be because um, it happens in the future or because somehow this legal case is lost, direct action will happen. People will be out there in the way of logging. There's no way people are going to let that go down in the Brighton Bush community. Um, so right now we're kind of in a waiting game. We're watching and waiting. Um, but, you know, I hope the Forest Service knows now that they can't just get a, get away with stuff like this. People are watching. Um, people are going to file public records requests. We're documenting this. And um, hopefully, you know, we won't be seeing more of this. But because we live in the real world, the real sad world, we will be seeing more of this. And so, um, you know, we'll be out there again when the next forest is on the chopping block, which is probably going to be, you know, today, tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of always the thing. Um, well, yeah. thank, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this and the uh, rare, rare good news episode of, hey, something good happened. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, any, uh, uh, any, any other sources people can kind of uh, to f follow along on the fight uh, that the, you, people can find online? Yeah, make sure to um, follow Cascadia Forest Defenders and Portland Rising Tide, um, who will be definitely tracking and posting. You can also follow Cascadia Wildlands, who um, was the lead nonprofit on the lawsuit, and they've been posting about it, too. Great. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, go see a tree. Touch tree. <laughs>
just all month, but all year long. Check out Olay's new Indulgent Moisture Body Wash online or at your favorite retailer. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And. Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer.